Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of uh, Frivolous Gravitas. Uh, today, we will be talking about inflation, also known as the hidden tax, uh, which is kind of which way we're going to be taking it. Um, inflation is something that keeps being talked about over and over and over and over and over in the news. And um, I know my wife doesn't understand it. I only marginally understand it. But luckily, we have Chris here who has a better understanding of it than me and my wife put together. Uh, so that's why we're going to talk with him about it. So Chris, just let's get going. Thank what you, Jordan. Is inflation. <laughs> sorry, I jumped the gun there. Oh, sorry. I was doing that whole dramatic pause that probably <laughs> seemed really bad. It feels really good to say it, but uh, then when it probably gets on YouTube, it's like, man, that guy's such a cringy weirdo. <laughs> I, think, I think you stroked my ego a little bit too much, thinking that I know twice or as much as both of you combined, but. We'll we'll see what we can get through, and hopefully we can all come to the uh, same playing field. <clears throat> uh, I guess basically we'll just start with an explanation of expl of inflation because I think it's really poorly defined in the news when they do talk about it. Uh, by they, I mean the media, but also the government and politicians and businesses and yeah. investors. Like they means literally everybody who manages money and actually tracks inflation. Um, so to start. Inflation is essentially just the increase of prices domestically, and it's intended to be a broad scope thing that um, that encompasses all goods that people consume on a regular basis. So not necessarily luxury items, but like ticket items like um, bread and eggs and, you know, shoes, socks, clothes, that kind of thing, gas. Uh, it's calculated by using the CPI, which is the consumer price index and the PPI, which is the purchasing price index. Um, and that's comprised of data compiled by the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, I think, ELS, so, yeah. Okay, go on. Uh, so the CPI uses a basket of goods, and that's prepared by um, composing a list of retail and service prices of regional urban markets. And they use roughly like 80,000 or so data points uh, every month that they collect, the BLS that is. Uh, certain items are given more or less weight based on the inclinations or the best subjective judgments of the governing bodies, but also by the market influencers like uh, lobbyists or billionaires. And the reason for that is wealthy people or people who have control of large pools of wealth, they have sway in the markets because the volume of the capital shifting its weight from one side to the other is sufficient to move markets on its own. So that's really important to note is that there are groups and uh, entities out there who with their own assets can change and it's not manipulation it's just they own so much of the pool of wealth that they can move their money and cause prices to change in the directions that they're moving their money uh, that means when they're selling a lot of assets prices are going to fall for everybody not just for them but as they're selling it the price continues to fall and as they're buying things up prices continue to rise okay um can we labor that a bit yeah because sure. um we have all these groups. So these CPI and the PPI essentially are just bodies tracking what the price of everything is. So we have a, because the market kind of sets its own prices through um, supply and demand. So we have to be able to actually see where the prices is. So are so that we can see the price of everything. So, um, uh, well, one correction is the CPI and PPI aren't bodies. They're not like groups. Those yeah. are indicators. They're numbers that are um, compiled using an algorithm. 
Okay, the algorithm so, is based on a basket of goods, and that basket of goods is what's subjective by a group that's putting it together, which is the Bureau of Labor and Statistics. Right. So then the this algorithm weights things, but a company can come up to you and say, no, 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 I want my oil or something because you're an oil magnet. Uh, comes up to you and says, well, you know, we we oil is really important, so we want you to give it more uh, because people are, say, maybe going to be using more oil in the next uh you know supply and demand is going to change in the spring because people use more oil in the spring or something or in the fall and so you need to weight that more heavily during this time period because you know they might know something that the algorithm doesn't generally what they'll do with that is just gas prices not oil itself because most of oil isn't going to gas gas like a barrel of oil is split into its um constituent parts so you get like kerosene from part of it so you get like jet fuel and fighter fuel yeah, uh, lower down in the mineral spirits <laughs> lower wow. down you'll get plastics and urethanes and like polymers and things like that used in construction and waterproofing membranes and mm -hmm. things like that and then further down the barrel you'll get like diesel and gas for your car and things like that so usually they'll account a consumer good as the gas for the car but even though you're you're making clothes out of polyester which is made out of oil they'll calculate the the rise in price of the clothes as opposed to the barrel of oil so oil is usually excluded ex except for parts of it mm -hmm. uh, they don't they don't weight it more heavily they actually weight oil less heavily and another reason they do that is because opec itself is a cartel and they set the prices of oil not okay. directly, but they set the production. Everybody colludes and agrees, like all the countries come together and say, hey, you can produce an extra 20,000 barrels a month. You can produce 60,000 barrels more a month. Or they'll all agree that there's too much supply and they don't want to compete with each other and drive the prices so low that they all become bankrupt. So they, they'll all say like, okay, let's all cut production by 10% each. So even though they produce at different rates, um, usually they try and do some type of organized price fixing in the market and OPEC's mandate is to stabilize prices but if you look at an oil market chart you can tell that they're woefully inadequate at it but yeah uh okay. yeah they're, they're essentially a legal cartel but um okay for, but something like a basket of goods in the CPI would be more like eggs flour uh, oh. shoes socks they don't include real estate which is a really important note too and I want to get to the Evergrande crisis later on in the episode um, because real estate is a huge, huge factor of affordability and spending power in people's in people's lives, and that's not even factored into uh, inflation, which is a major pro problem with it. But I'll get into the problems with it after I describe it a bit better. Right. <clears throat> so when uh, prices rise, obviously businesses are earning more money per sale, um, but that also means that their employer, their employees who are customers of many other businesses also have to spend more on everything they consume to survive. And that's that basket of goods that they use for the CPI. Thusly, uh, the, the employees will eventually have to demand higher wages in order to compensate for the higher prices of all the goods that they have to buy. But the demand for the higher wages comes after the price rises. So, um, usually the prices will rise first and then wages will rise after if they raise at all and that really doesn't benefit the people but that delay in having to pay out higher wages and having to or being able to charge more for their products the gap between the lag is what makes businesses more profitable through inflation wouldn't consumption go down before 
uh, wages start to go up. So prices go up, then consumption would tend to go down. It would probably go down differently for different products because, you know, people will still buy milk and eggs unless, but if they go up, you know, if you go to the store and all of a sudden the egg is now it's from 12 bucks, the carton of eggs is now $300. You're like, yeah. And that's what the CPI does. It factors in only goods that people consume on a regular basis. That's like its point. So it's things that people already do buy monthly, even if the prices go up or not. Okay. So that's sort of its its own point is to measure that specific type of spending and consumerism. So you don't really have a choice not to buy food. You don't have a choice not to buy clothes. So it's in, we do this in history where we, uh, we try and track the price of a loaf of bread to see generally an equal amount of, to see the value of their money and to see the spending power of like the peasants and stuff. Right. This is the same thing, but in our time and not trying to push us into the past. Yeah. And, and bread's a fantastic metric because you make it from wheat and wheat is really easy to grow in huge volumes. And mm-hmm. it takes very little processing to make flour and it takes very little energy to make bread. So finding the price of the cheapest necessary good is an awesome baseline for all prices of everything else in a market after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, yeah. So the only time wages rise faster is if, if more people own and operate their own businesses and they charge higher prices in tandem with the inflation and they decide to pay themselves more whenever they please. Those are the only people like individual consumers who actually benefit from inflation. But the benefit they're getting is um, is technically just a um, borrowing from tomorrow and then you borrow from tomorrow and pay it back and borrow from tomorrow and pay it back. Like you're not actually getting ahead. It's just a perception of getting ahead. Because that money, like the hens still come home to roost. You still need to pay for it. But the business owners will get tax reliefs. Um, and that reduces the burden of higher prices even further. And the need for them to earn higher incomes to pay for the higher prices of goods. Because um, they're not paying as much in taxes. So less of their income is being taken away from them. So businesses also have the added benefit of timing and control of cash flow where employees are required to wait for their master's permission to consent to charge the firm or raise their wages or provide company paid inducements like travel or material prizes or things like that. So as a business owner, people still have the flexibility of as if they had a higher income and lower prices, but employees and consumers and just regular day people, the average common folk, they're the ones paying the interest on this future loan because they're paying higher prices now before Mm -hmm. their wages go up. And that's basically the same as interest on a debt, but they're paying the interest first and they're not getting the loan. (laughs) The businesses are getting the loan because they're getting to charge more first before they pay out more in wages. Right. And the government wins because they're getting more sales tax in theory. Uh, yeah, and not just sales tax, <clears throat> they're getting income tax too. So as wages rise, they raise the lowest tax brackets for income tax too, and then people's wages go up. So there's a higher percentage of their wages come back as tax. And most people are taxed at like 30 to 35% marginal tax rate, like all mm-hmm. things considered. Just at the end, what you've earned and what you actually paid out, you get a fraction from that, and that's your marginal tax rate. That number is like three times higher than business tax rates because businesses can write off a whole bunch of other expenses Mm -hmm. and they can move money more freely so that they can avoid taxes just by deferring it to the next year and deferring it to the next year while still maintaining control of the assets and the wealth that it's produced. 
most people don't spend every dollar they earn. You try and put some away, you invest some of it, you stuff some in your, your mattress or whatever, but I've got um, a jar full of yeah. coins right there. But, <laughs> um, so I feel like I'm missing one thing though, because why would the prices go up? So the prices, the prices go up, uh, the CPI and the PPI track this, uh, by looking at the goods. And so then, um, people start paying that after a while wages are demanded then wages go up. So things are getting more expensive, but what would make the prices go up in the first place for these goods? Say all of a sudden, well, I guess it could be anything, right? So like if you yeah, have a loaf of bread, like then there could be like a storm in the Midwest or just a, and then all of a sudden wheat, there's less wheat in the market. So because of supply and demand, the wheat becomes more, uh, becomes more valuable for the bread makers and all the other people that use wheat. And then, uh, so they have but to But it's mostly more. complicated because of human intervention. So okay. stuff, like, stuff like that would make sense. But <laughs> in, in order to stabilize the price of wheat, the government subsidizes it so that farmers don't ever go bankrupt so that we always have a food supply chain. So there's like a floor on how much wheat can go down. And then from that, taxpayers will pay the rest. And again, the bulk of most people's income like a, a third of everybody's income is going to taxes and a third is going to rent, which goes to a landlord who doesn't pay nearly as much taxes. So, um, it, okay. The distribution what? and the cash flow, like the velocity of money is very skewed towards one end of the spectrum. So if there's too much wheat on the other side of the supply and demand and the price goes down and the farmers aren't going to make as much. So the government gives them money in order to make up for the loss in uh because they're essentially banking on the market um you know you grow a field of wheat you expect to sell it at a certain price to make a profit right so mm -hmm. no matter what the farmers will uh be subsidized so it doesn't matter what they grow but then uh for the consumer the taxes are taken into account because we're still paying those taxes and so it'd be the price of wheat into the sub and we're, we're paying for the wheat and the subsidies so one of the most crucial factors in figuring out what the, the consumer price index will do uh, and how prices will change is the, the central bank's interest rates. So when the interest rate of the central bank changes, it changes the rate at which people are investing and buying into your currency and your currency valuation changes. So there's all kinds of different dynamics at play here because you're talking about international trade and everybody's country has their own trade system and all of those currencies are valued based on a relationship between each other. They're not valuable just on their own. A Canadian dollar is useless to somebody if they can't convert a Canadian dollar into US dollars because then you can't do trade in the States, right? So right. When a, when a central bank changes the rates, that has a way bigger effect than just an environmental thing, unless there's like an environmental catastrophe, like, um, like California's wildfires and stuff like that. Like that actually destroys property that produces goods, like farms and, and things. So once a farm is destroyed, you can't just turn it on after the, the, the winds blow, right? Whereas with a drought, you know, you, once water comes, you can sort of feed the crops again and everything starts growing. Well, so, well, in the 30s, what would happen was the Dust Bowl would actually blow away a lot of the topsoil sometimes. So, mm. 
but that's but again you can just put down more soil and you've still got a farm whereas if it burns down your equipment is destroyed all of your investments all of your silos all of your storage everything is gone you got nowhere to live while you're working on your farm either Mm -hmm. so destruction is far far worse than um than just an event of climate or uh, what do you call that weather a weather event (laughs) yeah so the idea with inflation is that it stimulates growth and that's sort of the reason the government pushes for a small moderate inflation target um oh i should have put up should well bank of canada website i think it's just bankofcanada.ca they describe all this too so if you want to get further into detail in it um they'll explain better than i will because i don't believe what they say but i'll i'll, I'll try and steal steel man argument what what their ideas are essentially they want a small modest inflation price rises because that discourages people from hoarding money from saving money and that sounds stupid because it is stupid but the the reasoning they give is if you spend money that you have instead of just sitting on it you'll invest it in things that produce more goods and that money will serve a purpose to stimulate the economy and and growth is their big target number right everybody wants to get bigger um but bigger isn't only isn't necessarily better if you're already producing enough goods that all all the people want getting bigger doesn't help anybody unless it makes prices go down but prices will go down because you've got huge inventories you're trying to get rid of because nobody's buying your your extra stuff Mm -hmm. so growth only matters if you've got customers you can't serve because you're so busy but you don't have enough uh employees or equipment or time or whatever the case is mm-hmm. but in in the idea of the government and the central bank what they want to do is tell people to um to invest and yeah no so this is what you're describing is the bank is trying to get us increase the velocity of money as you said before yeah so like i've got that i've got that jar of coins on there honestly there's probably a couple hundred bucks in loonies and toonies and and they quarters. hate that. <laughs> oh, yeah, because it's just sitting there. And okay. honestly, it is losing value as times go, especially when I'm not spending it during COVID. I should really go spend stuff. <laughs> I should go buy food or ammunition or something. Uh, buy a, but, but the It's only losing value because of inflation. If there right. were no inflation, it would sit there and it would be just as valuable today as when you use it a year or 10 years from now. Right. So they want me to go and spend that because that's all the money in all those jars and savings accounts and you know uh checking account that someone's uh fastidiously saving up for you know maybe school or you know a car their first car or something or anything like that all these wonderfully romantic ideas i can come up with or drugs i don't know maybe they're being a good <laughs> drug addict and i'm gonna save up for all my drugs okay no, whatever. responsible drug addicts. <laughs> <laughs> but they all that money pulled together would actually probably end up being quite a big sum like and so if that money was infused into the market say i go buy paint and now paint the paint company or and canadian tire can go and input that and hire maybe another employee and do that all that kind of stuff so that money increases that money velocity is increased and the volume of money moving around is increased therefore there's more room there's more money to invest and therefore uh there's more growth in theory 
is what the Bank of Canada is describing, which makes sense when you say it out loud, but what's wrong with that? Okay, well, the issue with inflation is that it's like borrowing from tomorrow under someone else's name in order to be richer today by the metrics used to evaluate wealth, but not in real spending power standards of said wealth. So it only actually makes a business richer if it keeps uh, increasing prices every year. If you do it just one year, then you have to make up for it the next year with a stagnant price and you're no further ahead, right? So as long as you keep doing it every single year, um, you're you're constantly getting this benefit of spending now is better than saving. So Mm -hmm. the government's caught between two minds because on the one hand, they want a safety net for people who crash, crash and burn or whatever, and their companies fail or they they lose their job and they're unemployed. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, they want people to have savings, but nothing they do encourages people or promotes them to have savings. Everything costs people money. So like if you put money into a savings account and get 1% per year, but the government's actively pushing through policy and the central bank's actively changing rates to, to drive inflation up to 2%, they're forcing your money to lose value on purpose. 1% so minus 1% per year. Yeah, is, and because you know, spending you know, makes bigger thousand... numbers and bigger numbers look good. But well, bigger numbers have... aren't always better. If I have 10 ice cream cones, it doesn't make me any happier than if I had nine ice cream cones. <clears throat> One ice cream cone makes me really happy, though. So <laughs> if there's an interest rate of 2% per year, and I have $1,000, and I'm getting, I'm getting interest of um, 1%, I'm losing minus 1% per year, so I'm losing... Was it ten dollars? Uh, yeah. But so that's ten dollars per year. But that's that's pennies to so. But when it's pennies, so I'm losing that much money per year. But it looks like on the books, it's saying that the Canadian market is gaining two percent. So they're artificially saying that the economy grew two percent because we have two percent more money. Because yeah. And it's not a reflection of people's spending power because now everything's more than 2% more expensive because profit margins are based on percentages. Mm -hmm. So if the price of something goes up $10, then the market value goes up 30% of $10. So the company makes more money. Everything costs more money. People have less savings, but the the country, the government gets to show a graph that shows an upward trend. And that's what they do to get elected. And then, so therein lies the problem is inflation is a political means. It has nothing to do with the benefit of the people. Pushing for inflation is something that you do when you want to um, uh, fudge the numbers, basically, obfuscate reality. And, and it's deceiving people into thinking that they're getting richer when they get pay increases, especially with minimum wage increases, because yeah. costs are always passed on to consumers. No business runs and just doesn't make a profit. Every company has to make a profit. So if they employ somebody, they have to make money on the people they're employing. And that means that all of their supply chains and all of those employees also have to make money and increase their margins on all the goods that they produce and distribute and sell. So the complication with using a CPI that doesn't factor in cost of living is that people with more than $100 in a change jar, that 1% difference is like more than a year's salary of other people. That 1% difference is nothing compared to the 13% that the real estate values appreciated or the rent increases of 5 to 6%. Mm-hmm. And the government limits how much your rent can increase, but the limit to the rent increases is higher than inflation. And inflation doesn't count real estate, which is what your rent is based on. 
So it's absolutely asinine to consider that it's good for all the public and the population inflation. It's only good for business and businesses are the largest contributors to campaigns. So again, it's politics. Right. So um, I don't know if you're done with this, but I was thinking what mechanism do they use to actually increase the inflation? Uh, well, the central the, bank interest rates are the easiest to point out because okay. as soon as you change the interest rate, there's there's an inverse correlation to it. Okay. And then I might want to ask, because I keep hearing about, you know, well, the, the, the most famous example in history is, you know, we just print more money. Uh, see the Mississippi bubble and mm. John Law, not John Locke, John uh, Law. I think it was John. And he essentially... Um, what happened in France in the under in the 18th century was, and this happened to Britain too, but it was more spectacular. It was more spectacular under France. Was that um, he? There was investment in this new land in Louisiana called Mississippi. It's it's gonna be this. It was touted as being this wonderfully fertile farmland. Now, if any, now, anyone's seen pictures of Mississippi or seen one movie in the bayou, they know that this is not good farmland. It's not good land to you know, colonialize, to start a city on, to do really much on, especially if you're in those old days. So everyone was investing in this. And so what happened was uh, when everyone found out what how terrible it was and when the expedition uh, the colonial expedition failed, all that money fell through. So it was all the money invested from all over the country failed. And so the government was out of money because they invested a ton of money in this and they had lost it. And so they needed to print money. And so they started printing money. And then there was a run on the banks uh, where everyone in Paris and a lot of the rich people went just literally went into the bank and asked for their money back, which the government didn't have. So in order to pay them back, they printed money. Now, this is pretty, this is a lot like what you're saying, where because there's more money, the price of money decreases. Money also uh, abides by the laws of supply and demand. If there's more of it. It's not worth as much because everyone has it. And so what with that example, there's a few issues that conflate the, mm -hmm. the subject, and I'm not trying to defer it. I actually want to get to it, but we'll get to that under um, talking about bonds and the Evergrande thing, because when the government doesn't technically print money, what they do is they issue bonds and the central mm -hmm. bank gives the money for the bonds. And the bond is basically saying that all these people living in this country have to pay taxes. We'll pay you back in tax money. But again, right. it's future money. So every time they print money is just like a business raising the prices before they pay higher wages. <clears throat> you're borrowing from tomorrow and you're charging the customer the interest. Right. Just like okay. inflation. So it's right. the same concept, but it's a completely different structure and a different set of words and everything. So that's okay. sort of why I wanted to bundle the two together in oh, this episode that. is to talk about inflation and bonds because they have the same structure, but they talk about them completely no, differently. That does help make sense because if you if you take out a bond then you're essentially creating that money out of nowhere mm -hmm. in order, but in anticipation of future growth but if if uh if the country doesn't grow like say over covid uh then that money isn't supporting any actual growth and therefore 
doesn't have any equal it doesn't have any like there's no value that it represents in the market right and the value that you're talking about in the currency is actually like um an exchange value between countries mm -hmm. so it's not that the money itself isn't worth anything in the in their own country no it's that the country money is worthless to other countries and a country like zimbabwe that's entirely dependent on imports um that's catastrophic as soon as you can't exchange your money internationally and you need an import you're screwed mm -hmm. but a country like canada is actually completely different because in canada if our money was reduced to absolutely zero we have energy supplies we have raw re uh, resources we have spare land to build factories and stuff and we have competent labor so right. even if our, our canadian dollar went down to absolutely zero like um, the mark in Germany did after the war or whatever. Yeah. We'd still have an economy and rather than make a new bill, we'd just use the same bills we already had and we'd just reprice everything based on supply and demand locally. Right, because we're part then this is this is this is this allowed not allowed but is this possible because we are integrated into a global system itself because a lot of what Germany was doing post World War 1 and during World War 2 was they were had a kind of an insular economy there was investment from the outside but a lot of what they were mm -hmm. trying to do was um i guess more of a uh, mercantilism but the problem was the purchasing power of their money went to war and destruction mm -hmm. of things that that's the problem with their the mark didn't go down because it wasn't usable or you couldn't trade with it it went down because they spent it on stupid things <laughs> that don't produce more money See our last episode <laughs> yeah <laughs> so like if you only do it for one year like i said before then the next year it shows up as a reduction of income just like right. paying back a loan reduces the money in your bank account but there's an interest payment that you pay either that's in the value of time that you've lost in having that money or it's like a literal interest payment like a bond every time mm -hmm. you issue a bond even to the central bank you have to pay an interest on it mm -hmm. that interest amount is money that didn't exist before so that's the money that's being created into existence is the interest payments. The loan gets repaid, so that money it gets added to the supply of money, but then it's removed after the bonds matured. But the interest is never accounted for. That's just mm -hmm. money that came out of nowhere. You've paid extra into a bond or a loan. Um, every time you pay interest, that's money that didn't exist. And the way our banks work right now, the reason why it's possible to have a run on the bank is that we don't actually have um, reserve requirements sufficient to repay people's deposits so the, one of the biggest problems and again this system models perfectly what inflation is trying to do with um, pricing power mm. um, banks will receive a deposit and they're allowed to lend out 10 times more money than they actually have in reserve so that means when you deposit ten dollars into the bank they can lend out or they can leverage out nine of it to somebody else or lend out nine of it to somebody else Somebody else can then spend four of it and put $5 in the bank. And then that other bank can then lend out four more dollars. Right. Which makes sense because they're expecting growth in the market to such an extent that they can say, well, this money will be worth more later. So I'll lend you the hypothetical, uh, the leveraged amount, which they create, I guess. And they, yeah, that's money created out of thin yeah. air. So they leverage your your one dollar into ten, and then they lend out a couple to another person in expectation that in the future it'll actually be worth that much because of growth. So they're saying, well, no, it's worth this now, but it'll be worth this later. So I might as well just use that money now. And so 
but the bank's only business model is fees and interest right the only the only operations they do as a business unlike a plumber who plums or a carpenter who who cuts wood the, <laughs> the bank's only job is to thank you for your money i'm going to lend out 10 times more of it to someone else right and then charge an interest and that interest again is created out of thin air that money is money that wasn't earned in the economy it wasn't based on a sale that was exported to another country or uh gold bars or anything like that it's literally just you're paying me for giving me your money so that i can give it to somebody else in the expectation that other people's work will make this dollar worth more but the bank doesn't even care if you lose all your money you still owe the bank so they yeah. really don't even care what happens to it they just want to make sure they get their money back Right. I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, sorry, I keep getting hooked on this. Um, no, it's fine. It's complicated. Uh, this induction point where, you know, the market's been growing and it will continue to grow and therefore we can do wacky things with money. But if, if the, that's, that's inductive reasoning. And so far, honestly, for the last actually quite a while, um, except for a few bumps in 2008, 2009, uh, it seemed like that was an actual, like that was, good math but until you look at consumer debt mm -hmm. like as soon as you chart consumer debt over the last seven decades you can see that it correlates exactly mm. with the market rise people are broker than they've ever been because they have more debt than they've ever had but they also have more stuff but that's because spending was increased to stimulate the economy so mm -hmm. they're encouraging it's like using a credit card when a teenager has a credit card and they run up the card and it's like 18 percent or whatever the yeah. banks love that they do that on purpose, you know, like an 18% credit card and telling you like visa commercials and shit that say, oh, go buy all the things you want. You can have that nice life you've always earned and worked <laughs> hard for. <laughs> yeah. But what what they're doing, though, is the same thing as the government saying we want inflation and stimulating business growth, regardless of whether there's customers there to buy things. They just want people to produce more. And the idea is that if we have an overproduction, we can just sell it abroad. And exports are awesome for a company's economy, our country's economy. Except and that's what the government really wants is exports. Except we don't produce or export much anymore. We've moved well, that, that all elsewhere. We're exporting raw resources. Like we're not oh, okay. adding value to our resources before we're selling them. So we're right. basically just like dumping the mine in someone else's hands which is yeah. what the US did during the colonial periods and stuff when they took over countries, governments and deposed uh, leaderships. It was to gain control or favorite, favorable trade treaties or um, secure assets in other countries or footholds militarily, things that's, like that, to benefit the country in the long term. Well, and the same with at the United States in the, during the Civil War, that's what made the um, North such an economic powerhouse. Beside the fact that everyone owned their own labor, uh, that's another story. But um, sorry, just gotta get a quip against slavery in there. Um, but they were adding that value. They had a, they were a manufacturing base, whereas the South was a resource-driven base. You know, cotton, tobacco, um, and that other thing, sugar. And that's and they were just exporting that to Europe mostly. But because of Europe's control, Europe got favorable rates on all of that cotton and sugar and everything. Mm. So they're the benefactors. The people mm -hmm. that were working in the States didn't really get very rich off it. But the, oh, the price the of cotton... Certain, only the owners did. Sorry, yeah, but yeah. even the owners didn't, like, relatively speaking, an owner today becomes Jeff Bezos. Like, mm -hmm. billions and billions of dollars. Like, so rich that you couldn't even buy enough mansions to spend all your money. Those people never had that kind of, they had one nice big estate. They had probably, 
the newest horses and the nicest carriages and fancy clothes. They lived like millionaires. Mm-hmm. But like today, a millionaire is just somebody who owns a house. <laughs> it's totally different. Well, that's um, a that's actually a pretty good example of inflation there. A house yeah. is a good, and you mentioned that, doesn't, but like the price of a house, like Megan keeps looking at houses and she showed me one this morning. It's like $500,000 and it's not a, not a fancy or big house. Actually, for context, that's a really good point to point out too. then. Um, China right now, and again, we'll get into the Evergrande stuff later, but like China right now in Shenzhen or Shanghai or Hong Kong or something, to buy a house, it's like 25 years of somebody's um, average income. Well, you don't buy it. You you have custody of it for 80 years or something. Yeah, but I mean, it's close enough to buying it. Yeah. But it's 25 years of the average income to buy a house in Shenzhen or somewhere like that. Mm -hmm. Um, In New York, which is one of the most expensive cities in the world, London, New York, and Vancouver and Toronto, like they're uh, they're about 25. Tokyo is super expensive. Apparently San Francisco is still getting expensive, even though it's... San Francisco is insane, yeah. Yeah. But like New York City is only eight years. London is like 13 years of an average income to buy a house in London. And like these are notorious worldwide for how expensive it is to buy a house. Mm -hmm. And like you said, you're not even buying the house in China. (laughs) You're getting a 99-year lease on a place that costs you 25 years of an average income. Yeah. Like that's insane. Um, But that's again like a a hallmark of a bubble, right? Insanity. (laughs) Yeah. So um, unless... Okay, yeah, there is one caveat I should make. The the employees who aren't earning more money uh, or who have that delay in their wage increases, if they have investments, um, which are preferentially taxed and require no additional time or labor from the employee to generate more wealth, then those investment holdings of the employee will benefit from the business's increased profit margins from the inflated prices. So they will see higher stock values for the businesses they own shares in having taken out like public loans, which is the increase in prices is basically a loan on future productivity. Mm -hmm. Um, If they do that without having to pay interest on that money, which is like the lag and wage increases, then the employee benefits from the dividend that the stock pays out. But the dividend is only a small fraction of the profit, right? So they're they're getting something which is better than nothing. And it's not taxed as much as their, their salary income. But I mean, it's pennies compared to the executives and CEOs who are actively manipulating the price of their shares and paying themselves bonuses on shares. They pay themselves with shares to get money that's not taxable or deferred tax and reduced tax. Capital gains tax is only half of the income is calculated as part of your income. So, but the other thing with stocks and shares that pay dividends is that you can leverage them to buy other stocks and shares. You can borrow from them because they're secured investments. And that's sort of where you get this runaway factor where the inflation hasn't run away yet, but the wealth gain has run away. And that's what Occupy Wall Street was trying to say. They failed miserably, but they were trying to communicate that the wealth gap was caused by the rules and implementations of the structure of the system. Um, It wasn't about like elitists and trying to steal the money of billionaires or say that, you know, bankers are worthless people. Um, we need oh, we finance. That. <laughs> we need people in finance. We need bankers. We need loans. We need somebody to say, "Okay, you're definitely not worth a hundred grand." Like, I'm not giving you money just to start a paper route. Like, you need fair. somebody saying who's getting the money and who's not. 
Yeah. But the issue is the compensation isn't commensurate with the added value to the to the system mm. that they're working in. To Can make five hundred thousand dollars because your spreadsheet gave you a calculation that any idiot could have just opened the spreadsheet and looked at, but you're getting paid for writing the formula. Right. Um, to get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars when a farmer gets one hundred and fifty thousand, and the farmer feeds an entire city, like right. that's not even close to the same. Well, I think what a lot of people don't like is the, they have this Rousseauist vision where like all of this stuff, the stuff that we're talking about, it's just like, it's all too confusing. Just burn it down. I'm, it, they're, they're screwing me over. And yeah, to some extent they are, but that doesn't, that's, we're, I don't know. A lot of what we wanted to do in Occupy was illegal um, and immoral, but <laughs> But it was just an anger. And yes. because the system's so confusing, you can't really blame people for not having a direction to point their anger at. They just knew they were being abused and the system's so complicated they didn't know how. Well, that's a problem with the system. You can't, um, you can't put up false walls and barriers to entry if the money is owned by the people who are earning productive, uh, like they are the economy. Mm -hmm. right the money belongs to the people the government's just managing it for the people the wealth of the country is based on the productivity and wealth of all the people in the country right. there's nothing to do with banks right right it's there's an element of trust in the market and the that's more the difference trust though, there between... is in the market the more well, um everyone's going to uh well, profit from it because you know if everyone trusts the market then everyone's that means everyone's it's not just like oh everything will be fine it's it's because they trust it because uh it will grow everyone is at work everyone is uh you know producing more there are strange innovations coming out every day and we rely on those strange innovations but if we're all the problem i, I don't know if, i think covid's probably a good example because you know they want us they're raising all this inflation but we're not really innovating we're not no one's at work and we're just kind of sitting around and the growth isn't inspiring much trust and there's a lot of anxiety from that because like my, my my change jar is starting to look a little small i think the misinformation is what causes anxiety and the inflation is what causes the insecurity Mm -hmm. So if there were no inflation and people could rely on their savings and the price of their rent, they could plan for the future properly, right? Mm -hmm. They could say, I'm going to be $10 short for the next five years. Mom, can I borrow $10 a month for five years? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like they could plan for it. But when prices are increasing, you can't say like three years from now, I need you to lend me $40, $40 a month, two years from now, $30 a month, one year from now, $15. Like it's impossible for people to actually plan that way. Well, and it right? sounds, it sounds like a lot now. It's like you want $40 a month then like, and, but when it comes to then $40 a month, will be like, yeah. Well, just, but the, even in our lifetime, when I worked at McDonald's, a Big Mac meal was five twenty-five after tax. It's now almost ten dollars. Wait, really? Oh, yeah. Geez. Yeah, a Big Mac was three nineteen after tax. Like yeah, you could buy that's... it with your spare change. Now you have to break a bill to buy a burger, and it's I not. Remember, I remember being able to buy a hot dog for a dollar twenty-five. Yeah, <laughs> like... hot dog carts were great. Yeah, <clears throat> but I mean, there's really nothing wrong with prices going up if people are making more money, but it makes it so much harder for anybody to do their personal finances if the if the, the line is constantly shifting, right? Right, so 
So for people, individuals, it's best to have prices either stay the same or go lower. People love lower prices. Mm -hmm. So when we build TVs right now, as a perfect example, um, the baby boom uh, had a whole bunch of people in the workforce. And then all of us wanted TVs and all of our kids got TVs. And now every house has like four TVs in it, right? Mm -hmm. So at this point, it would be really stupid if Canada made a bunch of TVs. It would be really stupid of us to expect growth in the TV market. Because mm -hmm. we're not, our population's not growing uh, relatively, right? So right. why would you want to produce more TVs? Well, maybe if you're exporting them, yeah. But if nobody's buying them, why would you want growth? Right. And all the third world countries who see television as something first world countries do are producing TVs of mm -hmm. satisfactory quality that, you know, first world countries can just buy them because Samsung will expand into those third world countries. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And look at all the leftover cell phones that get sent to Africa. All these people that could never afford a $1,000 flagship phone. People are going through phones every two, three years now, and they're buying $1,200 phones every single, two, every single time they do it. Right. So, the benefit of it is now if Africans can afford better cell phones. That's a, that's a case where refurbished items and things actually get recycled, and wealth does trickle down in some cases. And in abject poverty, yeah, wealth trickles down. But, like, your cell phone's not going to build you a well. And without, without um, internet towers and Wi-Fi and shit, like, your phone can basically just do whatever is built into it. You can't add anything. You can't change it. You can't update it. You can't do anything with it but you got a phone that you wouldn't have otherwise got. Mm -hmm. But that's not reason enough to justify like skewing the entire system and rocking the boat. <laughs> you know what to I mean? To help a few like people in Nigeria get cell phones. Yeah, and like but the difference is 100, it's just like a 60 hertz refresh rate versus 144 hertz, or it's got three cameras on the back. Like Ooh. nobody is a professional photographer that they need all these cameras, but we've got cameras in everything from our TVs to our microphones. Well, to me, it's growth is not another like growth is not another camera in my cell phone. Like I've got three here and this is last year's cell phone. And they were like, oh, do you want the new one? It's like, it's a cell phone. I don't care. I'm not going to notice the difference between this year's and last year's. And that is growth to some extent, but it's not a large amount of growth. It's literally like there's you have more ability to do with your cell phone, but it's not enough to actually affect my life. Actual growth it me to me, it seems would be adding something to my existing life that allows me to do something I couldn't do before in mm -hmm. a quantifiable manner. So uh, all of a sudden there's new dishwasher technology and you just put your dishes in and, or like you put your dishes into your cabinet and they're washed. You put them in dirty, no matter how dirty, and it stacks them and cleans them. So when you open up your cabinet, these dishes, that would probably save me, you know, that would probably save me like a couple hours a week. And maybe it even composts them. And now I have more dirt in my lawn. And so that saves me from having to fertilize my lawn in, uh, you know, a couple, that saves me another couple hours. Hours are money. Time is money. Yeah. And so when I have more, I can be more productive in other areas. And, you know, I can maybe teach another student and therefore another student has an hour more of learning and so this ripples into the market. That's actual growth. Me having slightly fewer or more pixels in a in a photo on Facebook doesn't actually provide any growth into the market. Right. So, like how much innovation is being is happening in um in clothes dryers and washing machines? 
I mean, I was born in mid eighties and my mom had to wash my diapers, which were fabric. They didn't buy them from a store. Oh, and she washed that. them fabric <laughs> with bobby pins or whatever and yeah. washed them in the sink. Like cooking was hard. They didn't have mic we didn't have microwaves in the early nineties. Um, I mean they existed, but not everybody had them yet, right? My family had this huge one. Yeah. <laughs> but once the boomers started getting things like dishwashers and washing machines and dryers and um, like coffee makers and well, I guess those were common back then. Sorry, bad example. But um, better fridges, like bigger fridges, better freezers, things like that added so much value when they were being produced at a at a scale that everybody could afford them. That was a huge value. For cars is the same thing, which you mentioned a few times, is the Ford, the yeah. Ford effect. But like having really safe cars now because the government forced and imposed regulations and restrictions and subsidized them when they were having bad years and forced them to restructure and everything that type of benefit actually did help everybody because it causes less accidents less emissions um you know safety and all that is aside it's just you're getting a better car too you're getting like this on-screen dash display uh no look thumb things on the on the wheel so you don't have mm -hmm. to be distracted while you're changing the radio uh, yeah. that that kind of benefit is very useful but it gets to a point where you don't need a bentley like everybody just needs a car for transportation. Fundamentally, that's I mean, the biggest benefit is being able to drive and pick something up instead of walking. Yeah, you get diminishing returns off of innovation. That's exactly so right. Diminishing returns. So inflation doesn't factor in the diminishing returns. It just says forever let's grow. Mm -hmm. And that's the biggest problem with it is that it's completely ignorant of the reality of the marketplace, whether mm -hmm. it's a, a shrinking demographic, an aging demographic, trends can change, you know, anything like that um it's it's adversely affecting people's lives now when it used to be a benefit to it the inflation and stimulation of growth used to help people provide them appliances that they couldn't otherwise afford that saved them gobs of time hours and hours of their day but now the additional incremental benefit is so tiny that you can buy a kia and be just as happy as if you bought a bmw it doesn't even matter anymore right and that's the problem with inflation is the diminishing returns as you said you nailed it there See, you understand it better than I do now. <laughs> <laughs> now, so, okay. So if a country like, say, Japan, which I might be going off of hearsay here, has a negative interest rate because of their aging population, that's in order to provide more spending power in a market that is looking to have fewer and fewer people engaging in it. Japan's pretty complicated because they import yeah. all of their energy and yes. it may sound trivial, but when all of your production relies on energy, like Japan's got a huge robotics manufacturing arm. Mm -hmm. um, so their economy, even though they have an aging population is completely sustained by how much automation they've created in the process. Mm -hmm. And that's an example of when a government does a really good job at being an authoritarian. <laughs> When they're planning for the future of their country based on their country's standings, that makes sense. But our country, in contrast, only looks forward two or three years and all they do is pander to whatever trends are going on. And we have no long term sustainable solutions. Like, yeah, the last debate showed us that nobody had any long term solutions. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's changes every time the politicians change. So when Paul Martin was um, prime minister, we were still supporting nuclear power and stuff, I think. Maybe it was Kirchane, but um, depending on which administration is in office, we actually do sometimes have forward thinking, forward guidance um, principles. But because it keeps changing, there's nothing, um, 
there's nothing lasting. Uh, there's no tangible structure or foundation to rely on for economic uh, viability in the long term. Mm -hmm. We're basically playing month to month with our entire country's assets. And like we're acting like it's no big deal because growth is just good, period, for no reason other than the fact that bigger numbers are bigger. But like bigger yeah. numbers when things cost more means smaller numbers sometimes. Well, it's so. really hard to tell right now in Canada because our, our, our current prime minister does a lot of obfuscation saying like, if we recover, we need to have a she covery. So if we get women, more women into the marketplace, then we'll have a recovery. It's like, that's not logical. That's just, exactly. that's, that's just it's pandering. Like, what are you actually doing? If more people borrow more money, there'd be more spending. Yeah, but there'd be more debt. <laughs> well, no, they're, but now they are actually printing money. You know, the States is doing that too. And so. Well, the whole world is. The euro is yeah. terrible for it. Well, like, that's, all they, that's all they did to bail out Greece and then Spain and Portugal, yeah. like the Brexit, Grexit, all of that was based on EU's fiscal monetary policy and the rules imposed upon their inflation targets and their trade agreements. Mm -hmm. And uh, employment standards is another huge one, part of the EU. So to be part of the EU, you need to agree to a certain standard level of uh, labor, right? And the reason why things are cheaper in other countries and why we import them is because people can abuse and exploit their labor in other countries and we're not allowed to do it here. Mm -hmm. We pretend like that's not a thing or that it only happens once in a while when we hear it on the news, but literally that's why everything is cheaper that we import. It's either cheaper because it grows from the dirt and people just pick it up and give it to us, like oil and gold, but most things that we get that are value added, where they've taken linen and created a shirt out of it, where they've taken plastic and made shoes out of it, anytime something's created and we're getting cheap labor, it's because we're exploiting laborers somewhere else. Yeah, I get this a lot when I go to the range, because you'll get, you'll see a Beretta. Oh, okay, I swear this is not just me shoehorning and firearm stuff, but it's just so blatant. You'll get it, you'll see a Beretta, which is about $800, $900 for the base model. And then you'll see this uh, this Turkish company, Gerson, which makes the same pistol. It's the exact same pistol. It doesn't have the word bread on it. And it'll be 400, 500 bucks for the exact same pistol with the same tooling. And it's a good pistol. If you are looking at getting one, look into it because it's good. But this, this, this $500 difference is the change in labor from thing. And if you get a, if you get a Chinese made uh, firearm, it's going to be even cheaper. The yeah, you can get those for like 200 bucks from the Philippines. They've got gunsmiths just sitting in shacks and shanties yeah. or whatever with their right. own little kilns and furnaces. <laughs> the Kyber Pass 1911s yeah. are just like, it's cool. I don't want to shoot it, but it's cool. <laughs> but, but they actually it's... cast their own gun parts in just these tiny remote villages and in, in huts and shanties in yeah. the Philippines. And you can get a $200 gun. Yeah, that's it's worth a thousand dollars if you buy it from the factory that Beretta or, or no, like um, I don't know who makes Berettas, but uh, Italy they uh, Italy makes Beretta. They're good. They're really good, <laughs> and uh, they make they make good shotguns. But it's the same thing with Benelli or Mossberg. You get the same thing from Turkey or China, and you're going to be paying a lot less, but you're going to be getting marginal quality. But it's still a shotgun, and this same goes with cars. Um, and all these products and it, but it's so evident that we're in, like, if you want actual quality, you can get this from a nation that has labor laws and that's literally it. That's what they tell you at the store. It's like, cause this country has laxer labor laws. Slaves made this one. 
Yeah, essentially. And that's or it's government like. subsidized in the case of China, where China actually pays for the shipping expenses of the companies. Yeah, as just an example, but well, Turkey has higher building standards. At least China's, you're you're playing with fire. <laughs> but China's dependent on the manufacturer, right? Any Chinese manufacturer can decide to make good quality products. We've seen yes. it tons of times with like Huawei products have have been sometimes really really good and sometimes really really bad. Doesn't just mean you based on how much money they spend. Yeah, no, Huawei like they couldn't compete in in the North American market if they didn't make a phone that was comparable to an iPhone, like. Mm. I've never heard someone be like, oh, Huawei is a piece of crap, but like, I still wouldn't get one. <laughs> All of China knows you're here. <laughs> but again, the, the if inflation were an accurate re reflection of prices of things that everybody uses and everybody uses smartphones, right? Mm -hmm. Flagship phones wouldn't go up $300 every generation. They would go up right. $30 every generation. Right. Like, like more like video games did where they went from 40 to 60 to 80 and now they're stagnant at about 80 for a triple a game yeah and that's because people won't pay more they've tried to sell some for 99 with like bonus content and, and dlc and only the diehard fans would pay it or 130 for like a remastered edition yeah um but people like me who just casually play games here and there like i get one game a year kind of thing uh i pay nothing more than 20 or 30 dollars mm. just because it's not worth more than that to me well, yeah, and you used to be able to get in the 90s, you used to get a box up until about 2003 or something. You used to get this big box with a manual and it was like a book in there. Yeah, it was and, like a it was a whole engaging process to like learn yeah. how to play it and look at the the pictures on the on the what do you call yeah. that? The, the image galleries and stuff of like as they were drawing the characters out, like they'd show yeah. you behind the scenes kind of how they were making the game. Um but that value is all gone with downloaded content. And then the, the added problem, as we said in our EULA episode, is that they can restrict your access to play it because you're only buying a license to play games now. You're not buying ownership of the games, mm -hmm. which was still I, the case before with cartridges. But because you had the physical cartridge, the license didn't matter because you could right. just play it. Now, devil's advocate here, you can do a lot more in the games nowadays than you could before. So... You know, it's easier to code. I think I've even coded a Pac-Man game. I wouldn't even know where to start uh, with something even like Quake 3 or like Grand Theft Auto or anything like that because your those games are so... There's a lot of complex stuff in there. It does actually take a lot more effort to create uh, like a Call of Duty game than it does to create, um, you know, Final Fantasy VII most of the effort in creating games like that is in the cinema cinematics yes all of that is just the hollywood production they put into it the actual mm -hmm. like game physics they borrow from an engine yes the reflection maps and in, in like puddles and water and glass they borrow from an engine the object models they just buy them from asset catalogs and plop them in in the world they create the map just with procedural generation oftentimes to get that um right. that then... uneven surface so it's not just a flat land and they model um, cities, so they'll they'll just travel and take pictures of another city that they wanna they wanna yeah. look like, and they'll come. The most expensive part is all the cinematics, all the voice acting, all of the script writing. Um, that that to me isn't adding value to my game. I get well, some people probably appreciate it, but like I'm playing to play a game. I don't buy a game to watch a movie. <laughs> like if I want to watch a movie, I watch a movie. Yeah. So, but you make a good point. There's they're costing we're, themselves that are, money for no reason they don't well, have the, ex, the exercise we're doing is we're dissecting the value of a product that everyone would buy that would be in the pcc the cpi 
looking at my notes here, making sure I'm actually <laughs> uh, Purchasing pr price index is related to production, and the CPI is the consumer price index related to you and I. So they do have a lot, like the, the, the teams making up video games are larger, and the games sometimes are good, but you do get those indie games, which end up costing less because, well, production generally is less. Although look at something like Stardew Valley, which has sold so much and everyone's got a copy and it's literally one guy made this entire game and it's it's pretty epic if you like farming simulators um it's adorable I think meat boy was like that too like a single individual guy yeah that yeah super. the other thing you have to keep in mind is the context is the scale mm -hmm. like gaming before was nowhere near as huge a market as it is today oh, so oh, so oh no that's it that's a good point so you're making you're saying essentially that demand went up and so because demand went up prices didn't have uh, to rise didn't have to rise but it also because demand went up everyone went there's money in video games and so you get more competition which actually should lower price wait a second but again they collude <laughs> that's the thing when you're trying to fix inflation you're 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 literally colluding your your price fixing the thing mm -hmm. that we say is not free markets is what we're doing when we force prices up that's so, not capitalism <laughs> if prices went up just because a game had this spectacular production value like spider-man or something people would still pay it mm -hmm. right and it was a great game and it was worth 80 bucks and everybody would just pay it but the difference is like things like ea where they're trying to scalp all of their customers out of even more money by charging them for like um, loot boxes and like yeah. gamble cards and stuff like that. Cause a lot of people trade with their friends, like sort of like Pokemon cards, but it's soccer players in FIFA, for like example. Poco, uh, no, Fortnite mechanics where you buy skins and you, everyone can yeah. play for free, but you buy everything in the game. Yeah. So that money alone is more than the production cost of the entire game. So in theory, they could have gave, given the game away completely free to absolutely everybody and still made money on it. Mm -hmm. So by that logic, that that's an inflation cost that's not being factored in because, you know, skins on Fortnite isn't costed into the CPI. The government doesn't care if you spend money on downloaded content. Right. They're talking about basket of goods, like I said, like chairs and phones and things that you actually everybody buys not necessarily need but things that everybody perceives to, to, to need okay. so it's because of this psychology and the the appearance of returns that inflation is um favorable to governments and businesses because looking bigger and looking growing makes people more likely to invest in your company and when somebody invests in your company it means that they're buying shares and when they buy shares that's money you get to use to make your company bigger or pay yourself a bonus or whatever but the price of your shares go up. So all the shares you already own become an increase in wealth in your back pocket. Mm -hmm. And you can then turn that money again, buy more shares and drive your own price up even higher. So the rest of your shares become more valuable. And that's that problem with inflation is the compounding nature of interest. Mm -hmm. When you do something every year on a percentage basis, your compounding rates are exaggerated year over year as time progresses. And that's what causes super cycles, what they call like every 10 years. Well, they say eight to 13 years, but I just call it 10. Every 10 years is a market correction of like 30% at least. And then right. every, every time we have one of those, the prices are supposed to correct back to, to a, a normal level. 
But even in 2008, when everything crashed, they never hit a normal level. The government oh. dumped money into the system to keep it floating. Well, prices kept going up. I like, I and, gas never returned to the 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 level it was before, and uh, you well, which is funny because we saw negative negative oil futures. Well, my <laughs> uh, in March, my I remember I was working. I got laid off, and then my rent went up about thirty percent. And mm. then, um, well, I got my job back, so I was able to pay it. But now I had like I was scraping by a couple bucks of savings every uh every month that i was using to buy like i was putting it into gasoline or potato chips because it's like why save six dollars uh why save um you know uh 40 bucks a year that's not gonna like I'm, i save more now doing uh tutoring every year than i do than i did then so why even save money if i'm not making any um, why save pennies that's when later I'm going to make hundreds? That's also Sorry. shown in, in the, the country's saving rates. Like mm. deposit rates are almost zero. I don't want to say zero because it's probably not entirely true. Yeah. But like the psychology and appearance of returns is the problem with inflation because it's fake. It's intentionally deceiving. It's showing people that your company's growing when it also, when it aid may not need to, it might need to grow. That might be beneficial. If you're a courier and you've got a bike and you can finally afford to finance a car, you can do way more far deliveries than you could on a bike and you can make tons more money, mm -hmm. meaning you're tons more productive than if you just had a bike. Right. And you have more expensive, you have more expenses, but that's like you're making more money to offset the expenses. So in the end you are making it's like a farmer who buys that, like, oh, he spends a million dollars on a tractor. Well, that tractor is going to save him, you know, over a million dollars a year. Yeah, it makes the money. But yeah. it, it comes to a point, though, where, like, buying a Mercedes-Benz doesn't make sense to be a courier. Like, no. you don't need a Mercedes-Benz to move from point A to point B. And inflation right. is encouraging us to get Mercedes-Benzes for our courier businesses. Well, we Businesses about this. that don't need to grow or the ones that are growing already because they're productive. Um, there's no reason a company can't just wait a year and save up money and then grow. Like mm -hmm. there's no need to do it on interest. It costs more. Even if you get your stuff sooner, the risk of loss is greater if you do it, um, if you spend on credit versus earning money, saving it, and then spending what you've saved. Right. Which is uh, like, honestly, on a personal note, that's what I've, maybe I read too much Heinlein as a kid where he says like, don't use a credit card. I still don't have a credit card. If I want something, I'll save up for three months and I'll buy it. But like, here's the thing. If you would have got a credit card and stuck it in the SNP at 18, yeah. you would have like $180,000 right now just from your first credit card. And that would have been all debt, just $2,000 or something like that. Yeah. Cause it compounds. And since then we've dumped money in the market. Like during COVID look at stock markets, record highs, more record high closes than we've ever had in recorded history which in the is, stock market indexes which during a time of lockdown. Yeah. <laughs> this is because... exactly what I was saying when they were giving people rent subsidies. All they're doing is paying landlords and helping people who already have too much money maintain their wealth. And they're borrowing from the public who are the taxpayers, who are laborers, who can't afford to be in the investment markets because they're mm -hmm. priced out from fees or um, j just trying to diversify a portfolio. If a stock costs $300, that's your entire savings. How can you buy one piece of every stock if you can't afford one stock? Mm -hmm. Like you're priced out of the market by being poor. And the people who had property 
got the government to help their tenants pay rent to them, which they then wrote off as like expenses and stuff fixing up and depreciation on other assets they hold. Um, property doesn't count as depreciation, but like uh, if they had equipment, like coin-operated laundries inside their 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 buildings, they could just buy new coin-op machines and put the old ones in another rental property they own that didn't have coin-ops. You know what I mean? Like they can write things off and move things around, whereas people just have what they have and that's it. Yeah, they have no mobility or um, flexibility with their assets. Which is a lot of the reason why I joined Occupy at that time, because I was seeing no way out. I was living on my paycheck and there was no room for anything but work in my life. And I was just like, just why I doubled down and spent everything on school. <laughs> and that's an excellent investment because that pays itself for the rest of your life. Mm. Even if it doesn't make you money, you're smarter for the rest of your life and you only live once. Well, and I'll make better decisions, which will end up saving me money in the long Like, Like I'll know how to read a label in better. I'll know how to discern and make decisions better. So I'll end up saving money, not buying myself stupid stuff or I'll avoid danger because I'll uh, be better able to think things through. I'll be able to understand the doctor better. So we, I don't like, I went to a doctor recently and I was smart enough to know that that guy was a quack. So I got out of there and got a second opinion because well, I'm smart enough. I, I learned how to learn and therefore I save myself getting cancer treatment when I don't have cancer. <laughs> I'm not even exaggerating on that. <laughs> but critically though, too, you didn't get a student loan to go through school. And no. what actually hurts people is the student loan mm -hmm. because then you're offsetting the benefits of education with the negative side effect of a lifetime debt that you can't even bankrupt yourself out of and an interest that you have to pay a bank who didn't do anything. Yeah, they literally didn't do anything. The bank didn't make the money they gave you. They just created it out of thin air from somebody else's deposits. They didn't earn the interest and help you study. They just sat there and said, you owe us no matter what happens for the rest of your life. Even if you get sick and you are under cancer treatment, you still owe that student loan till the day you stop breathing. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there in Canada, you can get forgiveness and stuff. But I mean, like the predatory student loans, like in the States, yeah. Um, or what's showing up all across Europe now where like Oxford and Cambridge and stuff and Harvard, they're like, oh, maybe maybe our tuitions are a bit high. When they're they're generating or raking in more money than most hospitals get just from donors and, and alma maters and stuff. Anyway, that, that's way off topic. Well, that's <laughs> another... well, no, because student loans are causing an inflation in in. Uh, no, they are causing inflation in tuition prices. Because Absolutely. You have this money coming in, therefore and there's no limit to it. Everybody no gets approved. Right. So the, the they're like the the people setting the prices say, well, they can afford it. Then it must be worth more. Therefore, it is worth more. Therefore, a fifty five percent increase in, in in tuition. Yeah, and students are eighteen. They've never had debt before, and they just say, whatever. I'm going to school. I'll, I'll I'm pay gonna it live back forever. later. It doesn't matter. It's just yeah. like, well, forever becomes a long time. The eighteen to thirty six. That's another eighteen years of your life. Yeah, you pay it off when you're forty, and you're you like that's you money no that idea you're not you giving to your finish. kids. <laughs> Like you might go blind and not be able to read so you can't finish studying or write your yeah. test. Like anything could happen to you in the 10 years that you spend, give or take, going to school. Mm -hmm. But you're taking out a loan before you've ever even known what debt is. And it's the only loan of your lifetime that you can't get out of. It's the most severe and critical loan that you can get. And they're preying on children and then overpricing school and tuition fees because they're guaranteed to have 
um, I don't want to say idiots like a pejorative thing, but like they have uneducated, untrained. That's why they're going to school is to learn how to do stuff like manage money. Mm-hmm. So to give those people the predatory loans, is just doubly worse. It's like just like EA selling loot boxes to kids. It's gambling for kids. Right. You're preying on people's vulnerabilities for profit at their expense, their lifetime expense, not just right. their cash expense from discretionary income. But it is a big deal. Well, and there's a whole scam to get people in there, like get as many people in. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. We yeah, talked about yeah. that a lot. <laughs> so from that, maybe I'll take it a bit into the to the bonds and stuff, so we get an idea of what's actually happening in 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 the world right now. Yeah. Um. So because of like we were talking about uh, the psychology and appearances of companies' balance sheets looking better when the numbers are growing, mm-hmm. this leads to um, runaway financing situations where debt is issued to an investor and that investor spends the money on construction and the construction workers and suppliers get paid and deposit into their banks and the banks in turn issue mortgages to buy condos and in a building that's still being built by the original developer, like for an example. Mm-hmm. So in other words, debt comes from nowhere or from an investor or from a bank or whatever, goes to the developer. The developer starts building things. Before they're done, they start selling their properties. The people buying those properties, those condos, are getting mortgages from the bank. So that money from the mortgage is a loan based on a piece of real estate that doesn't exist yet. And that's going into the developer's pocket. The developer's business, like those pre-sales, they help fund construction of other projects. So it's their business to not let money sit still, just like the bank's business is to charge interest and fees because that's the only thing they can do to generate revenue. So Mm -hmm. a good bank means a bank that charges more. That's just what the markets dictate. So if you want to buy stock in a bank, you're buying stock in a bank that charges its customers more generally. Some banks offer better services to their customers. So customers like them, but their stocks aren't as valuable because the investor's risk is that you might do something that benefits the customer at the expense of the shareholder. Mm-hmm. So the value of the stock is dependent also on the culture and the, and the direction that the bank itself is taking. But having money sitting stagnant is essentially a loss though to a business that's a developer because their only business is to create and generate revenue um, on construction. And the only way they can do that is through financing. And the only way they can do that is through pre-sales of other people financing. Mm -hmm. So all of this is just debt that causes more debt that gets paid to the debtor to repay a debt so that he can take out a bigger debt on two more projects instead of one. None of it's ever getting repaid because... And none of it ever gets repaid. That's what inflation encourages. If we go back to my my trying to understand... um, this so you you're taking it out on future growth expecting that that future growth is going to pay for the leveraging of the money uh which that is the leveraging yeah yeah which you which you go out which you issue out into and as bonds but instead of paying it back you make a bond with a bond which is the debt which you've created um is being leveraged in itself it is yeah i'm gonna get to that okay (laughs) again you definitely do understand it's just it is complicated yeah it has nothing to do with um, i think i have the ability to understand more than the actual no you do because you're getting ahead of me that means that you understand exactly where you're at and you're like hey what this doesn't really work and i'm like yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) so um the issue then becomes 
not while they're growing, because as long as they're building more properties, they're productive and they're adding value to the economy and it's stimulative and the country looks like it's progressing. Mm -hmm. China has like these massive cities that are completely empty and half finished developments. That's the problem. When you have one and it becomes two and then it becomes four and then it becomes eight properties, it's not a big deal. But after like 10 years, when you've got 150 properties, and suddenly you realize that like say 20 of them can't get sold because you know one of them found a sinkhole and they didn't do uh, their geo technical yeah. analysis properly and the ground foundation needs to or be this, redone or the, so they need a bunch mosquitoes more. swarming the entire building yeah <laughs> that's real um <laughs> that now, was what I wanna... when they tried to put plants on all the yeah they tried to be green every yeah, time yeah. china tries to be green they screw up and make it worse but so the issue is once they start accumulating these unsold properties, they have yeah. to sort of account for them in some way. And what they do is they 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 bundle them up in, in, in accounting jargon, I don't even know, but they bundle them up as assets instead of saying they're unsold inventory. Like if, if you and I were selling pencils oh. and we had pencils we couldn't sell, we'd label them pencils, unsold pencils. Yes. But with real estate, they say, oh, it's such a secured investment. You can call it whatever the hell you want. And right. People just believe you. So you have like three buildings that are empty, uh, save for the guy taking care of it probably, or making sure it's still standing, uh, mm-hmm. caretaker. And they call, and so instead of saying, okay, we need to sell these, these are assets for sale sitting on a shelf, just like a, just like a video game sitting on the shelf at EB waiting to be sold. Um, it's, no, no, look at this asset we have. Okay, so they're just reclassifying it. Now, one thing I wanna, you did bring up earlier, which kind of is creating this doom scenario in my head is the fact of the numbers that you quoted earlier about how hard it is to get a place, how much you have to save up to get a place to buy a place to live in China. Yeah. You said like 24 years, 25 years, yeah. 25 years, which is a generation. It takes over. That's assuming you had zero tax and all you did was work for 25 years. Right. Now, so you but didn't if you're eat. a new homeowner, you're going <laughs> to. <laughs> so you have to wait. But you assuming probably, you have cost of living, it's 100 years plus. So you have to start saving up. Okay. Okay. So if you add these two together, it creates this nightmare scenario in my head. So you have, you have to save up for so that your kids might have a place to live when they start having kids. Yeah, and, and only if you invested in the stock market for your whole life will your kids be able to have a place to live. So what's ending up happening is nobody's buying houses because everyone's saving up. Not not because they're not spending their money because they're saving, but because they can't actually use any of that saving because it's nowhere near enough to buy the place. And so, but at the same time, they have, what you're saying is they have entire cities upon cities of unsold um what do you call that uh real estate something's wrong here (laughs) it's worse than that though yeah it's actually worse because what you're suggesting is that these things are just sitting there not doing anything but in reality these people overpriced they did pay already they paid for an unfinished building so they got that 25 year salary out of all of these millions of people and spent the money Oh shit. And then they built, yeah. they built buildings that the people won't be able to afford. And to diversify their portfolio of real estate, they buy buildings in Canada and drive up um, Vancouver. Same thing to us. Yeah. Vancouver's prices. They drive up LA's prices. They drive up San Francisco's prices. They drive up New York prices. And is it's that, not just Chinese people. Is but, that what you see when you see those Chinese like 
real estate things where they don't even advertise in English and they like build a building in yeah. someplace and it's like, come to me, but they look like they're like 21. And they don't and- even want to live in them, right? Like they just, they're stockpiling them because they have so many in China. And you got to remember like China's got a billion plus people, right? Mm-hmm. Canada's got like 36 million. So like this tiny, tiny drop in the bucket of rich people coming in from, from China takes over an entire city. That's mm-hmm. more money than like entire cities in Canada have because of the scale differential. Mm-hmm. So when you've got um, developers who are building, let's say 150 projects in, in China alone and say 25 of them of like big towers, you know, 500 units per tower, um, they're sitting empty or unfinished or not even built or t- China just, uh, the Chinese government just had a, a bunch of them condemned and they had to blow up like six full high rises that were fully built, but they were, they were unlivable for some reason. Yeah. I keep seeing stories about their infrastructure being put up just, you know, you see like cracks in the foundation and stuff like that on something that. No, you see people just living on concrete slabs because they own the place and they're paying mortgages that they can't afford. Like they can't afford to also rent a place that's livable. They literally Mm -hmm. have to live in these shacks and they're just high rise shacks. But the problem is the government of China and the economy of China and the way that we enable our accounting practices, even in the West, the generally accepted accounting principles that allow developers to claim that real estate is a secure asset. Mm-hmm. Those companies don't just affect Chinese people. There are, they are so big and they're managing so much money. They're literally changing the price of, of real estate in London and Spain, um, uh, England and Spain and Canada and the US and, and everywhere, right? just because of the scale of uh, of the Chinese market. Mm-hmm. So now when we're investing in emerging markets and we say China's this workhorse, look at their growth rates, 10% a year, 16% a year, 20% per year. China's just growing and everything's great. You know, mm. <laughs> they're counting their real estate. <laughs> we're oh. not. Oh, geez. No wonder. So, so you've got because a bulk of I've people overpaying for unfinished homes. Not- I've been actively not trying to make real estate examples here because you said at the beginning, we don't count real estate in, in the price indexes, mm-hmm. but they are. And therefore, when they just keep building these things. And we do count them in the GDP sense, but we don't count them in inflation. So when it comes to people's purchasing power and how it affects everybody's individual lives, they want to minimize that as much as possible and drive the price higher because that helps business and business stimulation pays for campaigns. Campaigns get people elected, elected people want power. That's exactly how our system is designed to work. It's it's working, we just have a bad system. Mm -hmm. So the issue is not only did people overpay for their place, then they prepaid for their places. Their places were never built, right? They're, They're exploited labor. So they're already being underpaid for the labor they are producing in their lifetimes. And on top of that, it's corrupting the marketplaces of every other major city in the world because they need to diversify in case their their system collapses because they know it's a bubble. They're mm-hmm. fully aware that they're spending money they don't have. And those banks are also trading themselves between other banks. So you've got companies that are set up as real estate income trusts where all they do is own property, rent property and manage property. And all they do is collect money and pay dividends to shareholders who help them buy more property, own more property and invest uh, and rent more property, right? Mm-hmm. Perfectly legitimate business model. But the problem is the, the money generated from these REITs 
is lesser tax, first of all. It only helps people who can afford to buy into them. And they're buying properties in markets that they are intentionally inflating market prices by, by flooding the market with, with sales. Sorry, and they're Reeves. selling or they're buying all, the, all these condos and they're sitting empty. They're buying them just to drive up the price right. so that they can buy more condos and drive up the price until the price in Vancouver equals that in, Van in, in um, China, in Shenzhen or Shanghai or Beijing. They're going to keep doing it because that's a profitable business model. Right, but you in in a in a logical world, you drive up the price in order to sell for a higher price. So you you buy mm -hmm. a condo and then you sell the condo. You know, you buy it for I don't know a couple million dollars, and then you sell you sell all the 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 things, and they end up giving you you drive up the price because you know you're going to make a higher profit on it. But the thing is in that equation is that you're selling it, and you end up selling it for the thing. So the the money is still coming back and the people are still getting a thing, but they're not it sounds selling. Like it does, yeah, they're not selling it. Nobody, people aren't getting these <clears throat> because things. Because you don't need to, because it's a secure asset. Real estate can be leveraged. You can say, hey, bank, loan me $25 million because I've got 25 condos of a million dollars each. The bank's like, fine, I'm going to get my money back one way or the other. No problem. Here's 25 million. They take that 25 million, put down payments on 25 more condos. The price of condos goes up for all 50 of your new condos and you can rent them out. So they generate income in addition to raising their own property values because the scale of the Chinese market is so much bigger than the scale of everybody else's. The money they're dealing with is multiples higher mm -hmm. than the money that we're dealing with in North America or Europe. Like an order of magnitude is a huge difference. It's right. the difference from a grain of rice to the size of a house. <laughs> so. Um, I guess moving on from that, I want to get into bonds a bit, if you don't mind. Yeah, sorry, I, we keep trying to get. No, 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 bonds. it's good, it's good, it's helpful. Um, <laughs> All right. Yeah, so as we discussed before, like if you wanted to issue a bond to me, you could say, "Here's a bond. I'll pay you. Uh, give me a hundred dollars. I'll give you ten dollars every month for ten months plus an extra month. So I make Sweet. ten bucks on the loan, and then right? I make an extra ten bucks. Well, no, then I get." You get $100 now, yeah. but you pay $110 later, which to you yeah. is fine because, you know, prices are going to rise by next year. You'll have an extra 10 bucks to pay me the back. The expectation with growth in the market. So I'm, getting, I'm yeah. getting exactly what I got back because I'm expecting the market to do good. Now, if you own a bunch of properties and you want to give me a bond, right? You want to borrow money from me. You can say, look at all these properties I have as collateral. Lend me money. And I will be more inclined to lend you money than a hobo who owns absolutely nothing, obviously, right? Well, the hobo, like, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to drink more. It's like, okay, well, I'm not going to give you money because uh, just like spending money on a tank that's going to explode, a beer bottle isn't going to appreciate in value. But even uh, if they put it to perfect use, they could only make, what, 100 bucks with it? Like, not yeah. millions. Right. They could, make bare, they could make enough that they could lose in their, in their wallet. Yeah, you can't make that much money out of a hundred bucks. You can maybe make five hundred bucks out of it, but like right. to, a, to a real estate investor, that's nothing. That's not even rent five hundred bucks. But if I have two hundred billion worth of assets, then I can do a lot if I leverage that through a bond. Especially if you leverage it, but especially because you're going to get a cheaper interest rate because you're low risk because you own so much property. So mm. not only will I give you more money, I'm going to give you a better interest rate. And the product that you're buying with that rental money can then be borrowed off of again. So 
The system is designed to encourage and incentivize people in the least need to acquire the most at the cheapest possible price. And, and, and then it feeds itself. I still can't get over the fact that nothing ends up getting sold. The, yeah. the, the, the thing <laughs> is building because if I'm if like capitalism in my head is I start a business and I start selling stuff, I can leverage that in order to, uh, you know, buy another factory so I can sell more stuff, you know, but they're just moving like they're not they're literally negating value in the system or they're aggregating value towards them in the system. And it, it, it's short sighted, but it's making the money. Yeah, but it's very end, short-sighted. It's only benefiting them. The whole idea of me making a factory is that you get this good, you get slippers or something, and now I can supply slippers at a higher quality to everyone and at a lower price because I can produce them better because I was smart enough to do my business in a certain way. And now everyone has great slippers and says, oh man, these slippers are great. But what happens if I say I have the potential to make you know, a billion pairs of slippers and look at these, these, my assets. I could sell these whenever I want and everyone would have slippers when I sell them. So give me money so that I can sell all these slippers. And then, you know, they give me money and then I take that money and say, look how much money I've got from making slippers. <laughs> you should give me more money from making slippers. This is why Rolex destroys their own products. That's exactly why they, they artificially create, um, what do you call that? Uh, Scarcity. Scarcity yeah. is the, the key in all of, all of economics fundamentally presumes a scarcity of resources. Right. It's like butter, or maple syrup or diamonds. Yeah. And it also assumes people are rational. Mm -hmm. But yeah. when you have company stocks that are growing 10, 15% a year because they're buying and leveraging um, real estate developments and things like that, that are really shaky and unstable to begin with fundamentally, mm -hmm. Um, their stocks look really attractive to investors. So their stock values go up as well. So even just the numbers on paper become inflated because the loans become inflated because the real estate becomes inflated because the company was, you know, buying one then getting two, buying two, then getting four, mm -hmm. that whole compounding process. It works great only when things are perfect, but it's not sustainable because nothing is always perfect. No, Eventually yeah. there has to be a downturn. And you're never prepared for it if you're constantly assuming next year is going to be bigger or better. The most, the most responsible thing you could possibly do in governing a country is not look for growth, but look for, um, for need. If you assess demand based on need and you made needs affordable to all people, not just the average income, but the lowest possible income, and everybody could save money and start a business eventually just from the bottom line up, Everybody would be on the same playing field, but when you're priced out of the market from a small business, the only thing you can do is offer a service. The only thing you can do is be a plumber, be a carpenter, or be the one person that's like Jeff Bezos or, or Mark Zuckerberg, and mm -hmm. everybody else loses. And that right. type of system doesn't actually benefit the people. And if you think about what the point and purpose of a market and money is, it's to facilitate trade. It's so that I don't have to take a cow all the way down the street to exchange for a thousand pens and then sell 900 of them so that I can keep a hundred pens. Right. Like, that's just so absurd. Right. Well, if I'm, if I'm making slippers, but the, I need, I need leather. And so if you're selling cows, I don't have to go directly to you. I can go to someone who's, who you distribute leather to, and you know, you distribute, you have a bunch of middlemen who you distribute various parts of the cows to, because if you're in capitalism, you don't waste any part of the cow you can make money off of. Exactly. And 
it's like you use the entire buffalo and you you give i buy it from that middleman the distributor who's selling leather goods and he, he aggregates it and so it comes out and now it's cheaper for everybody because now we have this middleman and now i can make my slippers cheaper because we have the market and i don't have to build right beside your cow factory i can put my factory where it would be most efficient for distribution and the key point to take note though is the market is for the people the benefit of the marketplace is so that every person in the country has easier access to goods well i'm selling sorry i can't get over this point (laughs) the value of money is also something that the public allows the government to handle it's not the government's to handle it's our productivity and labor and our currency we're allowing the government to use it mm-hmm. and they're abusing that authority. If we wanted our money to retain value, we would never agree with inflation. None of us, because most people aren't self-employed. Most people don't benefit from inflation. Only self-employed people benefit from inflation. Only shareholders benefit from inflation. The actual workers never do. They're always paid after the fact, after the money's already been in circulation and spent. And if you add supply to uh, money supply to the market, you decrease the value of the currency for everybody, but only after it's spent. So the first person to spend it gets to spend it at the proper purchasing power and everybody else gets to pay the diluted expense. Mm -hmm. So that's the tax that um, inflation, when you hear inflation is a tax on everybody, that's the tax that they're talking about. They're saying the first people who have access to new money, either the banks on their interest, because that money came out of nowhere, interest money wasn't anywhere. Loan money wasn't anywhere because of fractional reserve lending, they can lend out 10 times more than they have in deposits. And that deposit wasn't their own money. It was somebody else's. So money that's created out of absolutely nowhere isn't benefiting the public if they don't get to spend it first. What it's doing is diluting the public purchasing power and making them poorer, even if they're making more money, even if they're earning slightly more than the year before. If the, pr- the price is increased and they can afford to buy less goods, and their discretionary income is lower. They haven't benefited at all, but the numbers have gone up. Their salary looks bigger, their paycheck looks bigger, right? Mm. And it's that type of mentality that they're intentionally doing. Because if, if they just outright tried to rob people of their, of their assets, people would freak out. But if they do it subtly in a really complicated way like inflation does, then everybody's just passive as sheeps to the slaughter. So that that same compounding that makes a developer rich in the beginning works against them to lose all their value um, exponentially more quickly. When share values drop, as investors sell the developer's stock, when they realize that there's some funny business going on, or there's unsold inventories that they're classifying as uh, uh, income assets, which don't generate income, like Mm -hmm. a hotel that's sitting empty. Oh, we own a hotel. That's an asset. Well, if nobody's coming to your hotel, it's not an asset. If you're trying to sell it and you can't sell it, it's not an asset. Well, this right? is why like, I keep coming back to that point. It's like you actually have to provide the service. You actually have to provide the good. Like, and people need to want it. They have to go yeah. to your hotel. You can't yeah. just make goods and say that they're good. I have a BMW. It's broken. Well, I still have a BMW. <laughs> <laughs> so you should treat me like someone who can afford a BMW. Like, come on. Yeah, this so is what the- I'm getting out of it. The weird thing about real estate is that the way they can leverage it, and I, I guess I'll, I, I wanted to talk a bit about like the financial institutions too, but I guess, how much time do we have? Uh, 20 minutes I or so? don't know when we started. Neither do I. I wasn't paying attention. Sorry. No. <laughs> uh, um, 
maybe I'll just say something quickly then. Um, when I'm talking about the numbers being bigger, those are the financial statements that corporations, especially public ones, are required to produce. And that's why we have generally accepted counting principles across the world so that we can mm. actually compare apples to apples more yeah. or less between countries, even though there are slight differences. But the financial statements which investors use to, de to determine uh, the future prospects of a company, like their growth, um, it's founded on materially misleading statements produced by the developer. And this is supposed to be combated by hiring uh, auditors, like financial auditors and accountants to overlook the books and see that they're not, uh, they're not manipulating the words or and phrases and things like that. But another layer of corruption is in the accounting practices because like PricewaterhouseCooper, for instance, who looked after Evergrande's audit earlier this year, um, this year is when the stock tanked like 97% or whatever it, it shot down after they realized they were insolvent. The entire time leading up to that, PricewaterhouseCooper, which is a well-reputed well uh, accounting firm, they got paid like $40 million for the audits that they did of Evergrande's books. And that $40 million is chump change to Evergrande, who's, mm -hmm. who's charges that just for one building out of their 180 buildings that are sitting empty, right? Mm -hmm. But that's some Chinese person's whole life's income that PricewaterhouseCooper took to do a bad job at the one thing they're supposed to do well. Yeah. And there's no recourse, there's no repercussion. Um, I mean, there's there's an investigation, they say, but like we're talking about tens of millions of dollars compared to tens of billions of dollars, right? Mm -hmm. So the money in the system is is big enough to sway the entire conversation. Like Evergrande had enough money to to basically to to dupe even listed market companies like S, uh, the New York Stock Exchange and Dow companies and all these mutual fund holders. They own bits and pieces and a lot of this Evergrande debt is denominated in US dollars. Like a huge amount of it is. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I have the actual numbers actually. Yeah, so Ashmore Group is like $400 million. That's just what's due this month or mm -hmm. last month, I guess. BlackRock had over $350 million. UBS Group had over 300 or over 250 million, and HSBC had about 200 million. Mm -hmm. um, that's just the month, though. And every month you've got bonds maturing that they have to pay their debt, and they can't even afford the interest on it because they owe hundreds of billions. And the reason they owe all that money is because they took it from mortgages issued by banks to Chinese people, plus the down payments of these Chinese people. And they're still paying their mortgages, even though their buildings are completely underwater. You know? Right. So Evergrande's owing all this money to these investment firms who they issued their bonds to. And they're essentially, they, they, they're just paying the interest, but they can't even do that because they... Well, the shares let, tanked. Once they found out they couldn't pay, the share values tank, and then you lose all that money you right. used to claim that you had because you had a high share price. All of a sudden, you have zero cash. Right, because reality being the thing that will hit you in the face no matter yeah. what. <laughs> so what they have to do now is sell off assets, right? So they try and sell building. Well, what do you do when you dump a whole bunch of supply into a market? You drive the price down. So now all of their assets, even their good ones, are worth less money because they're trying to sell them all at once right, because they're forced to make bond payments. Yeah, their, their stock value already tanked, so they put a bunch of stuff onto the market, which they were holding off of the market, and nobody has money to buy it, so no one's going to buy it. 
but and stuff they don't want to sell they have to sell it for pennies on the dollar like right. they're actually so they're, they're actual be... valuable stuff they're forced to sell it just to make a one month payment when they're going to go bankrupt the next month anyway and that makes their value go down anyways from having to sell it so they're yeah. tanking now this would get worse now in a, in in america or canada a company like this would tank and everyone would be like <laughs> losers but this corporation is owned by the government am i right no no well they're they're chinese well, yeah so the government's allowed to do whatever they want with any chinese company that's just yeah. the way china's set up yeah but the exposure in the financial markets isn't restricted to china mm -hmm. these companies own properties in canada that will bankrupt canadians who have mortgages it's the exact same problem as in china it's just mm -hmm. going to be a delayed effect because um, the, the way bonds work is when, if you can't pay it, you get a 30 day grace period, right? Just like a mm -hmm. credit card. They give you like 20 days to pay without ever paying any interest on it. I'm getting worried over and here. That's a good way to get a credit rating and stuff. If you're going to get a house one day, wink, wink is get a credit card and just pay it off every month, but use it once a month so mm -hmm. that you get a credit rating increase because no credit is worse than some credit. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> My but anyway, plenty, um, plenty with, with Evergrande, right, you've got Canadian pensions that are, have diversified funds. And in that diversified fund, you've got emerging markets. And what's an emerging market? It's one of those big places like Brazil or China that, or India that are growing really fast and are really cheap to buy. Well, they were growing at 20% per year because of their real estate development and their exploiting of labor, exploitation mm -hmm. of labor, right? So we are personally individually in our retirement savings plans and in our our country's sovereign wealth fund benefiting off of the slave labor of other countries first of all and we're exposed to their uh, mismanagement of uh of real estate resources and asset allocation and they own physical property in our country so whenever grand goes down and they can't pay they can't pay uh they also have property here that's going to be fire sale so this property in our country then becomes a downward pressure on all the prices of our own real estate market the same pr pressures that pushed it up will push it down faster it's much faster to drop even though there's there's a limit bottom of mm -hmm. zero whereas up limit there's no limit right you can always mm -hmm. just invent more zeros but the issue is um, how fast it corrects and when it spikes down that fast, if people don't have the savings because they believe, oh, I finally, I saved up all these years to finally buy a $250,000 condo in Vancouver. Now it's worth 350 grand. Like it was all worthwhile. If your condo drops to a hundred grand and you can't afford it, you can't just like get rid of it and move out. That mortgage follows you. That, that's what an underwater mortgage oh, is. Okay. So I... when you sell it, you still owe more than what you, what you got. Okay. I see. So. So oh, then Canadians sorry. have a debt for the rest of their life that they can't buy another property with and they can't afford rent somewhere else and they, can't, they have to move. Sorry, let me just yeah, get yeah. this through. Let me just make my... So I buy something for a million dollars because it's like oh, a house, two-bedroom house, million dollars in a bad neighborhood. <laughs> it's like, oh, geez, it's brilliant. It's so cheap. But then, uh, you know, the Chinese do what they do best. But you need to have uh, a mortgage on it first. For I you. have a mortgage on it because I'm pay I didn't pay it off. I haven't bought it. Yeah. And so now I owe a million dollars to the bank. And then the market crashes and the bank says now it's worth 10% of what it was. And I could have afforded it, 
but now I have to pay a million dollars because of a previous agreement. Yeah, you used to owe the money. So it's easier to think of if you have a down payment, right? Because then it's your life savings. Yeah. So even if you break even, you've lost your life savings. Right. So if you have a million dollar property and you paid for half of it with your life savings, 500 grand, right? Mm -hmm. And the property drops down to $490,000, you still owe 500,000 and they have all of your money. Jerks. Yeah. (laughs) So you've (laughs) lost your life savings, plus you have to pay a monthly debt for a place you can't afford to live in. Yeah, that I'm probably going to end up selling in order to pay for that place that I don't live in. See, on the flip side, it finally allows people who otherwise couldn't get into the market to buy places for cheap, but it's at the expense of people's life savings. Mm-hmm. That means they're going to be more dependent on the government, more ne- needing of social services. They, they'll live less healthy lifestyles, so there'll be more um, impediment on the uh, or a burden on the healthcare system. So like all these costs start compounding as the exponential cost of loss compounds. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it's that compounding problem that makes things unsustainable because it only won't, it'll only ever work if the, if the world was perfect forever. That can't right. happen. It's just physically impossible for the world to be that stable. So to uh, encourage this type of accounting and leveraging and uh, fractional reserve lending is to say that tomorrow has to be better no matter what. And it's the, the most reckless You're, you could possibly be with money that people will allow. Because if you did it explicitly and overtly, everybody would be against it. You have to make it convoluted and complicated and complex. And they have to rule people out of the market so they can't participate so that they don't even know what's happening behind the scenes. Right. Because nobody follows it. the news like that. <laughs> Right. And when you do follow the news, it, well, the thing is like, you, I mean like Bloomberg, I mean, yeah. Like you watch CNN or Fox and you're going to get this, you're you're going to end up being mad at stuff. That's, um, you won't be informed. They're just, it'll be like inflation is happening. Everything's going to be fine. And you'll be like, yay. And they'll be like, then they'll say another word and expect you to cheer. And this is not news. They're not actually reporting on anything. CNN yeah, doesn't exactly. actually have reporters. <laughs> they haven't like, reported see, on see, anything since 2014 or something stupid like that. And um, f- like Fox will have reporters, but they're still Fox. <laughs> NBC's got like Jim Cramer, right? Like their stock yeah. guy. And all he does is yell and make sound effects and push big yeah, red buttons and stuff. That's People love this. They like they think that they're some kind of market genius or something because they're, they're they look like they're strung out on coke or meth or something like <laughs> that's not how investors are if you look at warren buffett talk he's just like calm collected calculating serious and you know what i mean like he's let me he's get my point across instead of being like invest bing, bing, yeah. Bing, 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 bing. yeah but the funny thing is most of the really successful traders are like autistic or have like mental dysfunctions or like dyslexia or something like that or uh ocd as in my case <laughs> well you need a certain type of brain to deal with that like i like yeah. my like I, I I can wrap my head around some of this stuff, but but it takes actually, an obsession to really brain. understand it. Well, it's the same in like uh, kind of sorry minor digression. Like they they tell you when you get into history, if you don't have that kind of obsessional bug, don't get into it because you'll just mm-hmm. be wasting your energy. And you need to you need to find yourself like I could have sex or I could read this history of the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> Well, obviously, I'm going to read the history of the Ottoman Empire. 
<laughs> it's just like that guy, that guy is going to be a historian. It's the same thing. You have to, yeah. a certain type of people will gravitate towards that. And the people that do that. Now you could get a type of person that ends up understanding the market, but not understanding human reality. You actually need to sell your goods. <laughs> Sorry, I can't, I can't get over that. <laughs> it's the interaction between dynamics that makes it complicated. So mm -hmm. it's not to say that people who aren't autistic can never understand. It's just that they'll be bored to tears and then they'll realize, oh, in the end, now I understand everything and there's nothing I can do. Whereas somebody who's like mentally obsessed with this stuff, they don't have to actually participate to have that want or inkling or motivation to keep studying it. You know what I mean? Well, so like following it and, and watching uh, patterns form on a chart to me is like watching uh, a seed grow, like watching life sprout from chemistry. Mm -hmm. It's all just dynamic systems bumping into each other and setting numbers. Well, then you get the Wolf of Wall Street types that get in there for the, well, I want big money and I want big stuff and I yeah. want Coke and hookers. It's like, well, we all want that really at heart, but you know, <laughs> but it's the, you're but not. They teach people to do it in university. That's the thing. Like they teach people how to do this, but they made the system so complicated that you need an MBA in order to participate in this market. Yeah. Now an MBA is a good place to learn how it works, but now with our new information network, see some of our previous episodes, I'm not going to get into it. You can <laughs> like learn it yourself. This is not, we're not providing financial advice. Oh yes, disclaimer. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> just an idiot on YouTube and on iTunes and stuff. Yeah. Do your and, own research. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, just if, if you understand, press the thumbs up button to show that you understand. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, so yeah, I'll let you, I'll let you go okay. ahead and. Uh, so yes, in, inflation stimulates growth. That's not technically a lie. Um, when the government says that, they mean it, but it's at the cost of consumers first in high prices and negligible wage increases, if any. It stimulates growth in the sense that money is being paid to people managing empty hotels and award bonuses to management for, you know, 10 years leading up to a bubble burst. Money which those individuals likely reinvest and compound for themselves and their personal wealth over the course of 10 years, again, on the backs of other companies and lenders who are inflating deposit values by generating um, by generating currency through interest that they charge. Like that's money that didn't exist before they, they, they issued the bond, right? Mm -hmm. So inflation does do the things they say, but they don't tell you the cost of inflation and they don't tell you how they're manipulating the basket of goods in order to get the numbers that they want. And they don't tell you how their reactions with the central bank, which are supposed to be decentralized and separate from uh, the government, the government, that's why they're separate entities is to make sure that the government doesn't just randomly print money. Like they the central do bank right doesn't now. ever stop them from issuing bonds. They'll just change the interest rate to change the value of the currency. And they changes uh, other countries um, willingness to put their money and in investment in our country, mm -hmm. because if our currency is dropping uh, anything they buy in Canadian dollars, like a Canadian stock, even if that stock does well, it's priced in Canadian dollars. So if the Canadian dollar drops, the stock still loses money, can still lose money, even though the stock made uh, increases over the year. The stock appreciates in value by 5%, but the currency depreciates in value by 10%. When they buy it back in euros and convert their money, they've lost 5%. Mm -hmm. So currency plays a huge role in what values of markets are because we're globalized. Before we were globalized, it didn't matter. Because even if your, your valuation went up or down, the only thing that changed was the amount of exports that people could afford. 
if your currency is really expensive, it's hard for other countries to buy your goods. So exporting countries want a lower currency value. That's why Canada's currency price is always below the states. It's not because our money's worth less or we can't compete or we're trying to catch up. We intentionally keep it lower than the states so that we have a higher American dollar we can buy more goods with our, with our money with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because we make a lot of stuff here too. Um, so a huge factor into this whole thing is the exchange of wealth and the movement of money because that velocity or the actual action of money swashing back and forth in a bucket, just like when you have water in a bucket, it splashes up every time you move it from one side to the other. Like try sitting in a bathtub and moving just a bit to get a little comfortable and not spill all over the edges of the of the tub. Like a little movement from a big body in a, in a fluid standing dynamic system, it, it sloshes everything around. And you can consider like um, a bubble burst or a, a crash, like a splash. It goes up the side, gets really, really high out of nowhere, and then falls completely straight down and then just dissolves back into the body of fluid dynamics that's below it, right? Right. Finds its equilibrium price. But if you're constantly adding water, removing water, and moving inside the bathtub, there's no way to actually value um, or accurately value anything mm-hmm. worldwide because everything's relative to real estate and real estate's a bubble that they've inflated intentionally across the world through mortgages and lending. So that right there is the reason that no matter where you go in the world, anywhere that there is a, a, a property to buy, you've got a manipulated market just from the get-go started because the banks are all leveraging themselves off of real estate because it's a secure asset everywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Maybe not Greenland or something or Denmark. I don't know. Some of those countries are really stingy with how they, they let property go. But So technically, inflation is stimulative, but the cost is paid by the people at the bottom. Well, the price. We, do, we, do we actually know? Because that's... Um... <sighs> It's one of Keynes's old things is if the government spends money, people have money and then they'll spend money and then there'll be money in the market. So like it, it's not like it makes sense, but does like how much do we know? Like, do we know this actually works? Is there actual studies showing that if we like how much <clears throat> if we stimulate public spending, how much that actually has a benefit like or does it just sound good and we go along with it because you know we we're told to do it by a guy with a lot of numbers and uh, a lot of uh letters behind his name um no no this works don't worry trust me because like that seems to be what it is like trust me like increasing uh people spending their money actually will benefit the economy we like will a couple hundred thousand dollars per community uh, being flushed into the market, will that be a drop or will that be actually a stimulus from the people? But then, like, do we know the efficacy of, I guess, inflation doing this? I would suggest I do based on charts, but the actual like technical real value would be impossible to calculate because the value of currency itself changes dynamically too. Mm-hmm. So a screenshot of today will be different from a screenshot of today five minutes from now because all prices of the entire country are changing every second of the day right? because values of currencies are changing and swashing around. So there is no point at which you could say, this is how rich our country is, unless you take the assumption that 
um, you're just picking a random time and date or you do the same time and date every year so at least it's consistent, then you can compare data points like we talked about in our data episode where everything is relative to the last few points as opposed to being a unit of number on its own. So right now what we're doing, if you look at the, the S&P stock index, if you just type it into Google or whatever, the first thing you'll show, because prices have inflated so much since the, bu- the property bubble- bubbles of like the 70s and 80s when they started uh, and then the 90s, they did CMHC so that people of low income could get uh, mortgages to stimulate growth in the economy again. After all, the people who could already afford mortgages had them. There was a slowdown. But if you look at the chart, it just goes like, well, I guess my cameras mirrored so it goes like really really high in the last 30 years it spiked and if you had a real value of a market and we didn't do inflation and we didn't print money and and um and everything was stable assuming deflation didn't happen like everything just stagnated and people could save money if their business was profitable and they had demand they could grow it with their savings that kind of thing right like an Mm -hmm. equilibrium balanced productive economy our stock market would be decimated on paper, it would look awful, like the worst crash ever in history, 80% drop down to levels we haven't seen since the 90s, right? But yeah. as a matter of quality of life, we would all be fine. We would all have a backup plan. We would all have all the gadgets and discretionary income because our country would be stable enough that our currency value would be so high that anything we needed, we could buy super cheap from other countries. Right. And this kind of goes into that saying, the, so, uh, the stock market isn't the economy. Right. So eventually they would means? dump their safe money that they want to hold offshore into Canada if we had that stable of an economy. But in doing so, we would have to deny people the right to do that. In order to keep our economy stable and not have an inflated bubble, we'd have to say, you're not allowed to, to give us money. We'd have to refuse free money that other countries are printing. And that would be the responsible thing to do because you don't want that liability. That's the whole point. Right. Unless sustainability encourages year, in stability, which case, not liability. <laughs> well, unless we have an election year, in which case, you know, we will <laughs> accept all this free money and graciously because that's what we'll do to get the economy on. And we get, you know, some fool who doesn't, who says literally stuff like, I'm not interested in economics uh, while running this country. Why did I, ah. <laughs> like econ- economics isn't important while being a prime minister, uh, just no words. And so, you know, we can't really rely on our politicians to handle these decisions. If that nice, um, it's blue on my screen here, if this thing drops down. Yeah, it's at the S&P right now is at 787.86. And in 97, it was in 95, it was at 533. So there's just what you have to look at is a trajectory, the shape of the graph is more important than the actual numbers. Yeah, the mean so the mean the the line of the mean of it is it goes up and then it kind of goes down and it kind of goes up and it goes down. And then you got this new mean at about 2009, where it it tanks a bit and then yeah. it just starts gradually growing and it tanks a bit at uh when covid hit and then it just shoots right up but the trajectory <laughs> itself in the long term if you go back from like 1980 what is this 81 that uh google if you just type in the s p and go back yeah. to 1981 <clears throat> and then you pick the max 
Yeah. You can see how low it was for so long. And then you can see every time there was a government intervention where they spiked up. Yeah. But then you can see how much different it is today from 2017 was like a hundred years worth of growth and more in multiples of three. There's no way we grew three times bigger than the economy in, 19, in, in the 1900s in the span of two years. They, they built highways, they built like railroads, they went, they built tunnels through mountains. Like they, they were very productive back then. And mm -hmm. they had to do it the hardest possible way because they didn't have all the fancy equipment and boring and, and tractors and mining equipment and stuff, right? But like, so a lot of that growth is because we have machines, but those machines themselves are included in that growth because these companies like uh, Caterpillar are listed on the stock exchange. So it's already accounted for in that graph. Well, Caterpillar Although, is at least going to try and sell their tractors. They're not going to hold onto their tractors and say, yeah. we got assets because they rely on people actually using their tractors, which is why they put their name on the side of them. Yeah. <laughs> and they're one of the best indicators too for, um, for future growth in a country. Uh, if you look at this real estate model, not, I don't subscribe to the real estate model, so I don't look at it. But if you think that real estate is always going to go up and it's always going to be great to leverage and that's the best way to make money, Mm -hmm. uh, looking at the stock of a construction company who makes machinery, heavy machinery like cranes, is a great way to find out which country is doing the most growing. Because mm -hmm. if they're ordering cranes and tractors, it means that soon they're going to have properties that are worth more than they were today. Well, and the people, well, and people are going to be employed to use those tractors and cranes, and yeah. therefore they're going to have money to spend on things that aren't tractors and cranes, and they're going to want to spend that money on things that aren't tractors or cranes. Mm -hmm. So. Like, so no, crucially, it's, though, it, it's the it's the shape of the of the graphs it has nothing to do with the numbers on the graphs. It's the shape of the graphs and the patterns and the shapes of the graphs that you want to look at, mm -hmm. because that's going to give you all the information you need to know relative to periods of time before and after. Whereas if you just look at the numbers, it means nothing to say something went right. up or down three percent because every day that changes. From like one I'm looking at from 2009 to about 2020, it's just this 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 steady growth but then it drops like that and then it shoots up like that mm -hmm. right after and i'm like there's no way we had that much growth since march 2020 like that's that's fake that that's that can't be real i i the economy is not like that right now right and the charge from 2009 and 10 all the way up to 17 is the same yeah. thing that was um that was quantitative easing and tarp yes. the toxic asset repurchase program that was taxpayer money that bought dead debt which is the same as like a building that couldn't be finished but they've already um we, they've already taken people's mortgage money for it yeah. just writing that off and saying that oh taxpayers can pay for that it's the same it's, thing as toxic asset repurchase program that they did to fix the financial crisis quantitative easing quantitative easing is the I've process of the central right. bank is uh issuing money and dumping it straight in the stock market and then as of march because they were so worried of covid they even loosened the restrictions further to allow the Fed to buy up corporate bonds themselves. Oh, so which is insane. How, You're printing money to buy corporate bonds like that. Absolutely. Remember, we we're talking about first access to money. Mm -hmm. When you increase the supply, it devalues the money. But the first person to spend it gets the full purchasing power of that money. You're giving that directly to the richest people on Earth. OK, yeah. So you're essentially subsidizing investment. Yeah, who yeah, are Romans already too wealthy. The Romans did this. Yes, in, they did. And the ancient Chinese in the Tang Dynasty did the Tang Tang. Yeah, so did Dynasty all the monarchs in France and Britain, and everyone's done it. 
And but that's totalitarianism. <laughs> well, yeah, it wasn't the Republic that did this. It was the late empire that did this. Under... But quantitative easing is insane, especially now that they're allowed to dump money directly into corporate bonds. Like if, if the government was going to print money to invest in my company, I would be rich too. Every single person in the country would be rich if we got that deal. Like, why would you give it to the singular, most profitable, least productive industry? Right. It's just absolutely insane that it's even allowed. Like, it's criminal. Well, and they've been doing it nonstop every month since 2008. Well, and then everyone's complaining that they don't have any money. But then, yeah. And so, like, they say, well, we're going to we're going to help the little guy. We're going to we're going to give money. Blah blah blah. And then no one no one gets any help from the government except for the people at the top. Meanwhile, businesses are shutting, like actual people working are shutting down while the people are getting bought out by the competition who gets even worse because you have big, these big box companies are not, they're not only getting subsidies to stay open because COVID's hurting them, but they're pushing these smaller guys who have been working to create, you know, maybe they got two, three stores in a city and they're being told to close to not work. And then at the same time, not getting, subsidies well they're getting cpac or uh, not cpac or whatever the the like they're getting a pittance in in response and then and they're they asking having, them to pay out their labor anyway <laughs> while superstore stays open so you have a meat market that's forced to close like there's a german food store here which uh was closed for a couple months while its direct competitors safeway save on foods and you know like all the loblaws things were uh ha- were like oh no we're too important we have to stay open like that's that's it's that's now then like you might end up seeing the same thing in the food market that you're seeing in the uh in the uh in the housing they sort market. of do that because it's visible right that's stuff that they can put in the news that people understand they understand shuttered doors and locked windows and things like that right mm. but what they don't understand is how um how their rsps might be contributing to an etf that's got a holdings company under an umbrella corporation of evergrande's debt like, yeah, they have no idea where their retirement money goes in their RSP. Yeah, and they can use an RSP themselves to also leverage into buying a new home based on the security and viability of uh, re- re- registered retirement uh, savings right. plans. Wasn't wasn't the Americans retirement plans wrapped up in this? Or yeah, so just... are ours. Everybody in the world is. Well, I'm self-employed, so yeah. <laughs> but your old age contribution at the end of your life, or in your 70 and older, you get an old age subsidy or whatever. That comes out of that. Yeah. Your healthcare expenses come out of that. I think they've already spent that, though. <laughs> they have. That's why they keep printing money. Yeah, this is going so okay. Let's. Uh, this is fascinating, but let's... oh, it is. I love this shit. Uh, but okay, <laughs> so if if they keep printing money and they keep and they keep making my money, my dollar, my loony worth, you know, less. My toonie's worth a loony now. Is no inflation, if we like outlaw inflation, is that like if we outlaw intentional inflation, not like natural inflation, like, oh boy, uh, we just did business and now our goods are worth this. Yeah. Um, or it snowed a lot and it was hard to get all the wood here, so it costs a bit more for wood. That yeah. totally makes sense. That's not yeah. even inflation. That's just prices. <laughs> yeah. So if we let supply and, you know, what is it? The, uh, the, the God ordained laws of supply and demand just take their course. And that's free and marketism. 
<laughs> oh no, I'm a fascist. <laughs> no, everybody claims they love free markets, and then all they do is turn around and manipulate them because mm -hmm. they're like, I want a trade deal, I want a tariff, I want a tax incentive, I want a subsidy, I want a rebate. And you're like, none of that is free market. So well, stop is... saying that you're in favor of a free market. Well, this is why I kind of fell in love with capitalism, but didn't change my views on corporatism. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, once I learned how capitalism was supposed to work, I was just like, oh, but okay. again, if the government complicated, but but <laughs> if by birth with your birth certificate, you got an incorporated uh, a corporation under your birth certificate registration number, let's say. Yeah. So everybody got the same benefits of corporations. There would be no problem. It would just be complicated. It would be right. needlessly complicated, but everybody would be on a uh, even playing field right from the, the day they're born. Well, complexity can be solved with um, education. Yeah. Well, to some extent, some but people are going to have harder time. But the problem is you're priced out of the market. You can only afford the consultant, the twenty thousand dollar consulting fees and the four million dollar accounting fees if you have a billion dollars of assets under management. Mm -hmm. It's the scales that are problem problematic. So if I want to incorporate a company, I spend a thousand dollars. I can either spend that on a credit card that charges me 18% or if I'm a developer, the bank will pay me to lend money out, like mm -hmm. which is fair. I'm actually working and trying to produce something and they're already getting the benefit that I'm, I'm trying to save up and pay for on a loan just to so, get the tax incentives as a corporation. I have to pay money and I have to borrow money to get that. So do we make it harder for Ottawa to issue money and, but then that doesn't stop Evergrande from coming in? Well, do we, but if we stop Chinese investment, then we lose Chinese investment. Right. And then every country looks at you like, oh, any day now they could just like pull the plug and, and my investment. And so every yeah. country backs off from you. And it, like every country looks at Trudeau like, oh, he's growing a little mustache there. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a serious concern too. So you actually have to dance the same dance that everyone else in the world is doing. Mm-hmm. And everybody's doing it slightly different, but they're all trying to find a consensus. And that's what the globalization is, is finding that consensus. So every now and then you'll get a trade deal that says like uh, no taxes on, uh, on wood or softwood lumber going to the States or coal coming from Australia to China. Mm -hmm. And then you'll have a climate ban or something that has tax, um, that taxes carbon emissions, uh, or you have um, a trade, a dispute with Taiwan and Australia has a dispute with like France over nuclear Those submarines poor sailors and, stuck off the coast like, for a year. <laughs> but stuff constantly happens. So that's proof that forcing inflation is a bad idea mm -hmm. because forcing inflation makes an assumption that we know patently false. Well, so to use that assumption yeah, is obviously false. But we do it because everybody else is doing it. And that's how it, we can value our currency relative to them as long as our rules are similar. But we don't, that's not in everyone's best benefit. That's not what benefits people. What benefits people is if productivity is distributed based on merit, based on what people earn. If somebody is a really productive hot dog maker, they should be a millionaire. They should absolutely be a millionaire if they're really good at operating carts across the city. Right. And if they get their hot dog maker up to scale, what's wrong with him being a billionaire exactly nobody's against making money with a free market but as soon as you start manipulating the market like um setting overnight interest rates and stuff like that which directly affect the investments which everybody's um, livelihoods depend on whether it's the company's cash flow because they're all pushing for tomorrow's growth none of them have active cash flow uh, just in time supply chains the reason why we're losing, we don't have enough supply of like Lysol wipes or something when COVID hits, 
or everybody freaks out and buys toilet paper is because we don't store inventory because holding a warehouse full of inventory just to have a safe backup plan is expensive. But it's not that expensive. We have tons of open land. We can absolutely warehouse extra stuff. We, but we don't because we're beholden to our shareholders who are beholden to bigger numbers. It's our, our, our deft focus on this growth model as if growth is the be all end all of all things. If your country is shrinking, you don't want growth because that's excess and excess means waste and waste means waste management, which costs money. You don't want to build stuff you have to throw out because it costs you money to dump it. Right. And well, it's a lot of these, like to me, it seems that from where I've been living, like excessive growth can actually be a detriment. Like I remember in 2009, Manitoba, like the Prairie provinces handled uh, the, the crash a lot better because they hadn't been excessively growing. They had been, you know, steadily growing. Yeah. And they so were much it, more measured in their approach. And it, like, you're not going to stop growth. Like growth is going to happen. Like, and mm -hmm. if you, if you're, if you're having uh, the opposite of growth, if you're, if your economy is shrinking, well, it's a good sign that something's not right in your economy. Education, healthcare, access to food. That's the only thing that'll stop growth because people are just born to grow. That's well, how like, humans subsist. I don't know. There's, there's a massive drought and maybe, well, why are we having a drought? Well, because we're <clears> farming <throat> badly. Oh, well, why are we farming badly? Well, okay. Well, we have but to look how this. much energy and effort the Netherlands put into irrigation. Yeah. Like, if we have problems with drought or floods, we could fix it. It would just take labor. That's it. It would cost money that we're paying bankers right now. That's it. We'd have the same standard of living, the same quality of life. The only mm -hmm. difference is somebody wouldn't be making money hand over fist on our labor for doing nothing. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So if you put that money towards the things that actually cost us money, like irrigation and planning for climate change, we don't lose anything. It costs us nothing. And we're prepared. And being prepared, like the, the Mormons were before Hurricane Katrina, like FEMA took weeks or months to get to, to New yeah. Orleans, and like the Mormons were there overnight because they're worried about the end of the world. They've already got a warehouse full of food and, and they, full of clothing and full of blankets and bedding. As much as, as weird as they are, the religion does preach like people yeah. are in need, go help them. <laughs> And these are the types of reasons that um, religions persist too, is because they don't just help in the community with like, you know, community stuff like we talked about in our prior episodes. Mm -hmm. um, they also help uh, weather like storms, literally storms. Well, you're practicing faith. You do need some amount of faith in the economy. Like I have to have faith that, you know, well, if the economy dies, I'm like, I'm dead too, I guess. Like if it just yeah. completely destroys it, I mean, itself. the business of churches, they don't sell just in time supply chains, right? They are mm -hmm. their own service. Mm -hmm. They produce their own good and they accumulate dollars from donations and they stockpile it for tomorrow because they don't know for sure they're getting income. They're not paid. They get donations. So they actually have to plan for droughts in income. Yeah. So churches are really responsible with their money. Good for the most part. I mean, those <laughs> super evangelicals that make millions are a different story entirely. That's just a state's thing. Yeah. But, well, there's a couple up here too, but... Yeah, no, but they make a couple million. Like, yeah. it's no big deal. It's the drop in the bucket. But the ones in the states are making hundreds of millions. Like, they're buying... They're part of, like, this Evergrande problem. <laughs> but you're also showing... Um someone like uh they're 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 selling their product they're not just leveraging nothing like some absolute like 
I guess they're le leveraging faith, but at the same time, we don't actually know what's going on metaphysically, so... But they're offering, like, a building for people to shelter in. They're mm -hmm. offering a stockpile of, like, childcare services and food supplies and drinking water and, like, practical things. Just religion aside, faith aside, and, like, mm -hmm. humanity aside. Economically speaking, churches are more productive than most banks. <laughs> like, literally. <laughs> Well, that's that's going to be the quote on the head. <laughs> Chris Driver, economically speaking, churches are more productive than banks. Because they provide something and banks don't. They issue money that other people gave them. They didn't do anything. Any idiot could take money in one hand and then hand it out to somebody else and then take more back from both people. Nobody, that's not beyond anybody's comprehension. Children can do this. Like children can borrow, take a cookie from a friend and then owe them two cookies tomorrow. Mm-hmm it's it's how they've made this so convoluted and structured it so um like to systematically exploit people under the table so that it's less visible and then to cover that with something that is visible like a number that keeps going up and everybody understands bigger numbers are be are bigger than smaller numbers mm -hmm. but to oversimplify the markets the way they do in the news that's the biggest detriment to our, our country is the way reporters are reporting on financial matters in the country. None of them go into detail about the basket of goods or the recalculation or the recalibration of the purchasing price index. None of them say like this is exactly how CPI factored into inflation this year because every year it changes. None of them say why the governments and what the governments are doing and why the governments are promoting a 2% instead of a 3% interest rate. Or I mean, uh, inflation rate. Well, and all of that's done when it is reported. It's like, oh, there's a two percent interest rate, and then like they just say it like it's fact. But well, it's they not. say it like it's fact, and then like, the implication is, trust me on this one. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's complicated. Don't worry. Like you do your thing, I'll do mine. I don't pump gas. That's your job. It's like wow, <laughs> but it's it's know, a problem I, of compounding and people's innate inability to grasp um exponentiation the reason why people are are anti-vaxxers during a pandemic is because they don't understand the scope and scale of exponentiation um that's fundamentally what what information is being exploited when we we employ these type of tactics in the in the fiscal imprudence i would call it yeah um, i'm just wondering like what can we do about it because uh, i like there's two things i want to get into one of them is what we can do about it. And the next is probably uh, mythology, but what can we expect? <laughs> <laughs> because like well, anyone tells you, honestly, what's gonna what we next. can do about it. Hmm. I am grasping at straws, like pushing string up a waterfall. Like I write books and make music and do podcasts and do graphic. Like I'm trying to scream it out to the world because I don't know what to do. I honestly don't know how to fix this without everybody's involvement. And to me, the only way people can even begin to analyze it and object to it is if they understand it. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to explain the faults in the systems of the world through every medium that I'm capable of doing in order to just enable people to have a conversation that needs to be had so that eventually down the line, there will be enough support to change the system for the better by somebody smarter than me. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess honestly you can talk know. to your, well, I guess the first thing is get educated. Second thing is, when there's a local election, literally <clears throat> sit down and talk to the the guy. It's like, well, what do you think about increasing 
like inflation rate. And he'll be like, well, yeah. the first thing we need to do is print money. And it's just like, okay, I'm not voting for you. Well, the first thing is to educate our politicians. They have no yeah. idea. No, well, when our politician them, goes up, idea of what we were talking about today, when our when when our prime minister literally goes into a debate and starts campaigning, saying the economy isn't important and it's not his, it's not what he's interested in. Like I'm interested in other things. The economy is small. Like no, the economy is. It's how we get other things. Yes. <laughs> like, you can't do other things without a functioning economy. Like the economy is what allows us to do all that social stuff. Yeah. And if, when it's functioning, then we don't like a functioning economy is one that you don't notice. It's one that's just like, well, I can just go to the store and buy my microphone and my, my webcam. Yeah. And I don't notice it because it doesn't blow up. It doesn't crash. Prices don't expense, change, like, but I don't. I like it doesn't put me out and I'm like, I can try a new project. And now we're started this project. We don't yeah. notice it, but like it, we are noticing the economy, which means there's something wrong with it. And when we can function, like focus on inane social problems, uh, it's probably a good sign, but it's, uh, but the harsh reality is like, if I gave people advice, like don't invest in the real estate market because it's a bubble, they will lose a huge amount of quality of life over the span of their lifetimes because of how much money there is to be generated in it. And being left out doesn't fix the problem. So right. might as well have everybody involved in it because then at least you're distributing those those resources, right? Well, and a lot of people- But my bad house. advice would be to buy up the shit that I'm telling you is garbage. <laughs> like that's how you fix the problem is if everybody owned stock and everybody had a portfolio. That would be one fix to the problem. Another would be give everybody, every human should have corporation rights. No, I've corporations heard this should not have more rights than human beings. What does this what does this mean? Because we make corporations people, but what 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 are we doing when we're making people corporations? We set up a corporation as a legal entity, right? Right. The human being is also a legal entity. So you can create a corporation that commits a crime just like you can make a baby that grows up and commits a crime. But right. the difference is a corporation doesn't go to jail. Well, because a human being loses the 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 freedom and quality of life and enjoyment and, and all the experiential things, the intangibles, the qualia of life is lost. That's a cost that a human being pays for breaking the rules. Right. If a human being sets up a corporation and a corporation kills hundreds of thousands of people through an opioid crisis oh, and the individuals so profit from it, there is no way to put a, a company in jail. They just go bankrupt. The name just gets written off like, and they just scribble it on a piece of paper and file it in court. Yeah, you get like Chiquita Banana, who used to be United Fruit, and go look it up on you on Wikipedia. <laughs> it's nasty. Banana but, uh, Republic, baby. Yeah, and um, so if you make a person a corporation, people can invest directly into them instead of. Am I, am I off base or something here? Because it doesn't matter how you do it. The point is, a human being has to have more rights than a company. Mm -hmm. If a company does something illegal or wrong, there should be more severe punishment than a human being because they have more controls in place and they should be responsible enough to set up prevention meth. But fining a bank like HSBC for laundering money for Coke dealers, fining them a hundred grand when they made $20 million is retarded. Yeah, it's because absolutely. Yeah, it, it's not so, even, it, it, it gets like Apple. It's the same thing yeah. with their, like, product manufacturers, not just banks, but like people who produce products, uh, SNC Lavalin even for engineering companies. Like this happens all over co the corporate world in, in the largest blue chip stocks. 
where there's like Deutsche Bank's fraud or UBS's frauds or um, what was it, Wells Fargo that just invented accounts and charged all their customers for products and instruments they never tried to buy. So the ones that didn't notice they were being charged for like 10 years were paying for a fraud detection service that the government mandates for free. They're paying 25 bucks a month for fraud protection. Like, and I know these exist because I actually worked at Chase Bank and my NDA is up because it's been 10 years. So bye, (laughs) Chase. (laughs) Yeah, like, but I'm just it, wondering. It's not what kind just of the banking sector, and it's not of... the stock market's problem. It's the rules of the market. It's the mm-hmm. rules of incorporation that's the problem. So whether you give people a company when they're born, and then they get to all of their misdeeds go under that company name, at least you've leveled the playing field, right? Or if you have a property bubble, right? If every single person in the country has a piece of that property bubble, it's spread evenly. The burden's not paid by the least able to pay it the way it is now. Right now, the people who benefit are the ones who have exclusive access to the market and are in the least need of earning income. Mm -hmm. Those people get the biggest access to the largest growth of wealth while everybody else doesn't. But if everybody else also had a piece of that stock when it blew up, everybody Mm -hmm. would be rich enough to handle the crisis. So it's more to do with leveling things than it is to actually changing the rules to make it better. Whatever the rules are now, just extend those rules to everybody else. If you don't make enough to pay for the transfer fees to buy a stock, your fee should be paid by by a hedge fund. Like Mm -hmm. it should be free to buy stock in your own country if your country is also taxpayers' money subsidized in that country. Right. You shouldn't be charged a fee that you're not even able to pay. Well, this, this, that, that recommendation you just came with there, like you should be free to buy stock in your own country. That's a good start. I mean, like, that's a good point that you could actually talk about in, in, uh, in a debate on how to, you know, stabilize or actually make the market more effective at what it's doing. Because Mm -hmm. the thing is, is that the market on its own, the market isn't its own thing. It's, it exists with recourse to humanity. Problem is, is that in these very real problems with it and how it interacts with the real world, um, it screws up and it's just some shady stuff. But a lot of what happens is when we ask the question, well, what do you do to deal with it? People go, well, kill the bankers. It's just like, whoa, (laughs) no. Okay. And there's a lot of overreaction and you get, you know, they become scapegoats and then it ends up being, um, the, 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 the response ends up having no bearing on the actual reality of the situation. You get something like in Nazi Germany where they're like, well, the Jews did it. No, it's not the Jews. (laughs) What they'll do, though, is they'll invent a crisis. They'll start a Mm -hmm. war and then they'll blame everything on the war. That's how wars start now. It's not even because we're in conflict or we're trying to protect people. Literally how World War II started. Like they blame someone to start a war so that they can take stuff and reboot their economy. 9-11 just happened to happen right after the financial or the the dot-com bubble burst. Like, what are the odds? (laughs) Well, I, I don't was, want to go too conspiratorial because I'm know, not saying they caused yeah. it, but what I'm saying is going to war over 9-11 it was won't. absolutely influenced by the stock market and a distraction for, yeah. for political gain. It absolutely oh, yeah, was. Definitely. You can tell because George Bush turned around a carrier, just, an aircraft carrier, just to take a photo shoot. Yeah, you know mission I mean? accomplished. Yeah, it, it wasn't even hidden. They're so blatant about their Hollywoodism in, in, in America that they don't even hide the fact that they do things against the public interest for political gain as, a, as just a publicity stunt. But every country does it. 
absolutely every country. And right. a war is the easiest distraction from a really bad system because it's much harder to change the system because the political donations, the whole reason that these people get into power and make money for themselves, because like politicians tra do inside trading, like that's, a, that's totally legal. Like, yeah, well, like, well, there's a lot of talk about Pelosi right now, where her money's <laughs> coming from. Like, apparently... but this has been forever. Oh, They've yeah. Always it's... been allowed to own stocks and things, and they're part yeah. of the financial committee that's regulating them and like punishing them. And yeah, you know what I mean. Is, like, well, this is like uh, you get stuff like in Romania, where the person in charge of the country, or is it the economy, is in charge of the investigation against her. <laughs> yeah, and that right there is a systemic problem that I keep trying to bring up in all these different ways. And it's mm -hmm. just, it's not that the rules are bad, it's that the rules need to be um, equitably distributed. They need to be evenly applied across well, all people. A lot so of what somebody's we... trading $100,000 uh, worth of stock, they can afford a higher trade price than somebody who's buying one stock at $5. Right. So you shouldn't charge the same fee to both people for one stock and 100,000 stock purchases as a flat fee. That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Just things like that make the rules actually reflective of the work and, and uh, input well, that's being contributed. There's a lot of little mechanisms that we can incorporate. And like some of them have been done, like there's one in Canada, which is it's so mundane, it's so stupid. And like, we're not just because we have the stock. I think one of the things is the stock market is the way it is. And we've got this finely tuned machine and you really have to know all the ins and outs, but no, no, we can invent new mechanisms for this machine as yeah. we go. Like one of the things Canada did was it made it uh, free for citizens and people in the country to pass money from bank to bank. So one of the things I do is I get paid uh, through e-transfer in Canada. That's free. In the states you can't do that for free which limits the amount of uh it puts a almost a tax on um being in business in canada it substantially eases the way people can engage in commerce with each other you're not putting a barrier you're in actually allowing commerce by allowing people to transfer money from one person to another for free it's so mundane it's so stupid but like, that's some stimulative yes that's very stimulative you're right and but, little things like that the, that that could change easily just conflicts of interest having one uh, unbiased third party participant in any conflict of interest makes total sense mm -hmm. and they apply it to you and I if we go to a job and and you and I are a magistrate or a laborer or some uh, union worker or something mm -hmm. you'll constantly have a conflict of interest where you have to recuse yourself but in government they don't in finance they don't in banking they don't all they have to do is pay somebody to be their third party interest, like an accounting auditing firm or a legal firm that says, mm -hmm. oh, I'm an independent lawyer holding money in escrow. No, you're my lawyer. I paid you. Yeah. <laughs> so the ratings agency is another like banks are paying the, the agencies that rate their viability. That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But like the more services you pay for the, from them, like just other services unrelated to the ratings, the more likely they're going to help you get rated. Or like just getting listed in the stock exchange, you have to you have to be approved by some like cabal of, uh, of administrators, and you have no, to you... pay them and schmooze them and expense account them with private jets and yeah, and then they'll be like, oh, I guess I can let you in, but because we can't have yeah, just we'll let you ring the bell with money because <laughs> there's that there's that expectation that the uh, the the small person, the small business owner, can't be trusted with these big uh, financial decisions when like 
the 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 ingenuity that it takes to actually run a small business is like that you have to put a lot of thought and a lot of work into starting up like a uh a uh, like a restaurant or something and those people have a lot of expertise and they just were like well no 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 it's it's a smaller type of expertise it's like no if we democratize the market like what you said you should be able to buy bonds like if we incorporate everyone and that gives you yes everyone can be charged and you have this provides actual negative benefits for people for large corporations but if we give them if that gives them privileges of something like they're allowed to trade freely in the market because everyone's incorporated or something um and you could trade maybe uh because everyone's automatically incorporated you could automatically trade shares in any business venture that you start allowing for people to just go and you get that corporate uh like there would have to be like rules so that you don't like sign it away accidentally and like you could incentivize your employees by issuing shares to employees (laughs) like profit sharing to employees rather than giving them raises say hey the more money this company makes the more money all of us make here's the exact proportion of how much of our profit you will make if you help my business grow like profit sharing alone would make everybody motivated so even work at McDonald's to make that McDonald's super profitable right. so that and you get at the end of a year, like a $5,000 bonus, right? An so actual like profit you're getting sharing. paid more. Yeah. So but like, then that money can compound. If you stay in one job for five years, you've helped grow the business for five years. If you keep rolling over your dividend income from the profit share every year, mm-hmm. you can buy a house in five years without even trying to save. Like you go about your daily life and every time you get a yearly bonus, you just buy more of your own company stock and you work your butt off. You mm. get the same raises you would have got otherwise. The only difference is the company owners, instead of making 850000 they make 500000 Right. And this Poor is baby. actually what the communists want. Like this is, it's not communism because everyone's engaging in the market, but yeah. everyone has an interest in the market that they're working in. It's not just like, well, I work, I get paid. You're like, you're a cog. Like you're a cog at living in a, in a society that allows you to have stuff like a fridge, but mm-hmm. you're like, it doesn't feel good. Now, to be fair, this would also allow people who aren't good with finances to just, well, I just want to be a cog. I'm just going to live my life in janitor. I like it up because yeah. you know, that's what I'm good at. It's like fair, but we for those them. of us who want to, <laughs> well, we need those. And like a lot of people are just, okay, just give me a job and I'll be fine. But a lot of us, can actually engage in growth. And this is why we talk about capitalism so much, because if all of us have the freedom to, you know, leverage our effort and actually put our effort into society, then, you know, it's that act, that growth will actually happen. And that growth will actually be real growth because we'll actually be producing and selling the stuff mm-hmm. that we're making. <laughs> Not just yeah, And that's, what's crucial too, is like, to to under to to think that capitalism could just go away and socialism means um like the bad socialism to yeah. say to say that that sorry to say that that would work better sort of implies that you know the microphone that i'm recording this on was built by slave labor the monitors that i'm i'm using on my computer was built by slave labor like the monitor stand i have the desk i got from ikea particle board that was pressed by slave labor and machines all of the components in my computer and everything i'm using right now to do free stuff 
which is socialist in nature, like I'm promoting socialism, stems from all the benefits and sweat and toil from uh, capitalism and exploitation. So I'm not saying capitalism is bad, but what I'm saying is we don't need 10 TVs in every house. We don't need three cars in every driveway. We don't need five different console, uh, video game consoles. And we certainly don't need um, our rights being owned by companies that aren't accountable to the justice system. The least they could do is make companies accountable to the justice system. If you can't ruin somebody's life, like sending them to jail, you should ruin, ruin them with a crippling fine, mm -hmm. a crippling fine, not like 1% of the money they stole from other people, like 500% of all the money they stole over all the years that they stole it. Well, you, 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 you earn money illegally. Like if you steal money, like if you literally yeah. go up and like steal money, they confiscate that money and give it back. Unless you're a bank, <laughs> unless you're a bank, and so yeah. like if I if I if I go up to a to a uh, like a hot dog stand and I go like you know yeah, give, give me all, all your money. money yeah and I just they they give me all their money and I make five hundred bucks and I'm like yeah and so I've leveraged my violent my tendency for violence to perform a transaction that's in my favor and so <laughs> but then I have to give it back and so you know you have. Oh, but we just lie to them, says Apple. But then you have people that actually steal. And then they're like, well, prove I stole the money. You don't know how the market works. Well, actually, it's this. But even but, with proof, knowingly, they find them less than the money they stole. Right. But with the proof, like intentionally, explicitly, without hiding it. They just say, here's the fine based on the evidence. And the evidence says $1 million collected. The fine says $100,000 fine. Mm -hmm. And it's not just once, it's JP Morgan, it's Goldman Sachs, it's Wells Fargo, um, Bank of America has been involved, HSBC in Canada has been involved, Scotia Bank has been involved in some terrible stuff down in uh, Brazil, I think. It's either Sco oh. uh, Bank of Nova Scotia or uh, TD, I can't remember exactly. I, but anyways, yes. <laughs> um, banks in, in Europe even, like UBS and Deutsche Bank are notorious for really bad fraud and, and bad loans and misstatements on their financial record reports and doing faulty audits. Mm -hmm. um, all of that kind of stuff just needs to be punished as if they were human beings. Because if a human being can lose their entire life, all of the productivity of their life and all of their possessions because they're locked in jail and their freedom, a right. company should be just as crippled for committing the same crime. Well, and we have a good example of what happens when we don't punish them like that because of what happened after um, the the crisis in 2009, uh, that housing market crash was the people who ended up screwing up our society got money for doing it. And we're ending up in a, where the economy and it didn't get better from it. We ended up with, you know, the same problems that we had before. And we can see in real time what's happening when we subsidize this type of behavior. Um, more poverty and more billionaires. Yeah. We've and never so, had so many millionaires in the entire history of the world. And we've never had so much poverty next to them. But like... Relative it's, poverty. It's, well, it's relative poverty. Not like, abject poverty, but relative poverty means I can't afford a $500 health care bill like yeah. in the States. And it's, or it's in Canada, not, there's no savings. So even if we don't have to pay for healthcare, not having savings is a huge problem. Right. And you so fix when, a leaky roof, your house breaks and it gets worse. Well, and we have repercussions in this when they're telling us that we have to stay at home and go into lockdown, but then not all of us have to go into lockdown. Like, oh, well, I have 
I'm a, you know, I'm a big financial guru and I can just go over the heck I want because my job is important. It's like, and mine isn't <laughs> like, and so like who decides this? Well, you know, I do. Let's to mitigate transmission of a virus though. It's a bit right. Different. But it's, it's the thing is, is that it's, if they're locking me down, but you can just get out of it because you're in finance or, you know, something like that. There's, that's, shows that like they're they're allowing themselves to play by different rules to me the better solution would be to give finance jobs to the people who have lost their jobs like spread that work around if there are mm -hmm. people working in banking making 200 grand sitting at home take some of that work away and give it to somebody else or just give the money to other people like better they work for it so yeah. it makes more sense to take the labor off their shoulders but what i'm saying is their jobs aren't productive they're doing things that computers do for them. What they're paid for is their knowledge. So if we have an educated society and everybody understands how the financial system works, we would be able to just trade those types of duties around to other people who need money. Mm. They should be able to go to the government and say, hey, I lost my job. And instead of going on EIA insurance right away, employment insurance, they should say, hey, we got a finance job for you. You can recalculate our next year's uh, budgets for X and X boonie city. You know, because small cities don't have as easy access to accountants, let's say. Mm -hmm. So you could be doing like municipal budgets for, for boonie towns and, and then get paid for actually doing work instead of being paid for an insurance, um, which isn't productive at all. It takes money out of the pool of insurance, which makes everybody less insured. Right. I think that a lot of like, honestly, if we just give them proper competition, like you said, if we give people the ability to just work in the stock market and lower the uh the barriers to entry. lower the barriers to entry and i think that would do a lot to equalize our society quite a bit absolutely and then you get more so people working Forex there. trading because that's what it was for me currencies yeah. are open to absolutely anybody you could just open an account and start leveraging 100 to 1. <laughs> it's beautiful so i think last thing i'm going to ask is um are we screwed? <laughs> Absolutely not. Okay. That's the, tell me why then. <clears throat> because we have institutions of education. We have access to communication like the internet, which gives us access to education. And we now have an archive and a stockpile of videos made by content creators across the world. So even if the internet died tomorrow, that stockpile of videos would still exist and data costs almost nothing. Hard drive space is super cheap. We've got fiber optic transmissions around the world. Everybody will always have access to education in some form or another if the government wants it. So all the we need is a government that encourages education and we need people who are motivated personally and individually to be educated. Mm -hmm. That would fix all of our problems in the long run. But there is no quick fix. There's no silver bullet that'll fix all these problems. The easiest way to start would be to just equalize the playing field, um, make make markets accessible to the people who make the markets. The reason a stock has any value is because the employees all con collectively made that company worth the stock. There's no reason they, they should be excluded from owning or trading shares in the marketplace that they've created. Right. And I think for us too, well, if we get more educated, we can see through their BS, but that's a the lot other of thing. what they're we'll make doing educated is, decisions. <laughs> right. But the thing is that like their BS government and corporate BS is very complicated. And like, if you're not paying attention or if you're tired that day, it'll get you and you might end up at war with China or something. <laughs> and the thing is, is that if 
I think one of the things we can do as citizens is keep them from talking on stupid subjects when there's an election and they stop and they say, well, the economy isn't important. No, get them talking about the important, get them talking about what the spending is show, get them to show their numbers. Don't this will help old people. Yes. I have a stimulus for old people so that they'll vote for me. And I have a stimulus for this type of people. And, you know, we need more money to trans people. It's like, no, no, no. People are people. <laughs> and if they, so you get them talking about policy and about economic policy. And if they don't understand economic policy, don't vote for them. Like doesn't but matter the party. <laughs> also shouldn't tolerate the jobs thing. It's not the government's no. job to create jobs. Yes. It has nothing to do with government. Absolutely nothing to do with government creating jobs. I can't stress that loudly enough. Every single time you hear a politician say, we're going to do this and it's going to create jobs. They're lying. That's not their mandate. That's not what they're there for. They're there to govern the resources that they have. They're there to move tax money and incentivize things through subsidies that are good for the entire population. Yeah. Like food supply chains and disaster relief and medical expenses and uh, infrastructure investment, that kind of thing. People Creating jobs create has jobs. nothing to do with the government. Like you want to create a job, start a small business. You want to help promote small business, educate people, period. You don't actually start the business for people and then make the jobs and make a make work project just to spend money. Right. Because it's not helpful. You're, you're telling people you don't have to work. Here's a restaurant. You don't have to work. Here's a distribution business. So you don't have to work. Here's a truck. Yeah. And then like, they're saying we don't have enough money to do this for everybody. And it's like, obviously, of course, you don't have enough money to pay everybody for doing nothing. Like, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's not more complicated than that, though. Like, honestly, if um, politicians are focused on creating jobs. What they're doing is borrowing money today that you have to repay tomorrow with your tax money so that they can create a job that's not productive. If it was a productive job, somebody would just start a business and right. they would hire people and they would start creating jobs, not the government. Well, and then you wouldn't be allowing to make people to make their mistakes and learn to make a better job because it's just like, oh, here's the truck you needed. Well, no, you need to actually work for that truck because you're going to make a lot of mistakes working for that truck and getting into that thing. And you're going to make, you're going to learn how, you're going to learn a lot of experience earning the truck to start your own trucking business. Mm -hmm. And once you get that trucking business, you're going to make a lot of better decisions because that, that, uh, that's going to be education. Yeah. And like, how do I stop for gas? I don't know all the things, a little minutia of the job that you need to learn. But if you just give someone a job, guess how good at they're going to be at that job. If you start somebody at level 10. <laughs> and look how expensive it'll be. Like if you can help 30,000 people with $1 with like a, a pamphlet or something that gets them into a free online course, like mm. there are university courses you can take online with pre-recorded lectures. Like you don't even need a professor anymore. If you want to learn something, you can just... Yeah promote education, not the institution of education, but if governments promoted real live education, they could fix a lot of the country's problem um, just based on people's awareness of the world around themselves. Yeah. Like when I moved to BC, I didn't even know what a condo was and I became a condo manager. I couldn't have possibly dreamed of being a condo manager in a place that didn't have condos because I didn't know the job existed. I didn't know what it entailed. I didn't know what the legal structures were. I didn't know there, there were no acts or laws that were governing it. Um, there's no licensing requirement in Manitoba. In BC, I had to learn a lot of stuff from the ground up just to manage in, uh, condos, which is entry-level management job. Mm -hmm. um, so not being aware of the world 
reduce uh, limits your um, your potential because you don't even know what to stretch out to. Well, the stupid part of it is, and we're kind of getting off the I think point, but like you can educate yourself, and if you can produce in a field a, uh, an original work, an example of work, or something, a paper, and then submit that as an equivalent for a bachelor degree because of stuff you've learned, you just did the reading, you did all the work and stuff like that, you did all your own research, and you show up with a paper going like, is this good enough to get me a bachelor degree? Or, you know, do I need to retool it? Because, you know, that's my thesis, take it. And oh. then, or you just start, you become an expert in the field, because you have access to libraries and online content. And all you start like talking online. And all of a sudden, if you are good enough at it, you start getting honorary degrees. F no. you. <laughs> Sorry, as a guy who earned mine. <laughs> that to me is more helpful than um, than the practice of trying to create jobs by having like safety departments and you know inspectors that are unlicensed or ungovernable types of offenses. Like um, what do you call that? Uh, uh, Shit. I'm having a brain fart. I think we've been going too long. Yeah, I think been, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm slowly been trying to wrap up, but Maybe. yeah. Um, but yeah, oh, just to get, sorry, to answer your question, the, I think what there is one silver bullet that you can do to get involved. If you just want to get started and make money and not be um, victimized, Buy you can start trading currencies. And yeah. I only say that because your margin requirements are less than a grand, so anybody can save up for it even on minimum wage, like I did as a teenager. I remember that. <clears throat> Anybody can open an account. And if you educate yourself and practice enough without real money, because you can open a practice account and trade actively on daily markets, but um, you know, minute by minute markets, but without your real money. After you practice a bit and you've gained some, uh, some tricks and strategies that help you, um, you'll figure out your own um, tolerance for risk and you can make your own investment portfolio, even if it's just like a five, $600 or just the active engaging process of, of learning and following markets is hugely beneficial because it carries through with you for the rest of your life. The things that you pick up and learn from watching the markets actually move. Yeah. Um, and you can not only start that, to hear their bullshit. Yeah. But you're actively managing your own. You don't have to pay somebody else fees to manage your own investment mm. fund. Right. Right. Uh, I wouldn't suggest ever anybody ever put all of their money into Forex because it's a super high risk. It's extremely close to gambling. Like the success rates on it is like 51% if, if you're, but that's enough in investing as long as averages work in your favor, right? Mm -hmm. But a successful trader will get around 70, 70 to 80% right. Um, so when you're hedging your downside and you're maximizing your upsides, everybody in the world with an internet connection and a laptop can trade currencies and make money the way rich people make money instead of trying to make money selling your life for hours per dollar you mm -hmm. can make money compounding it with leverage um, so forex markets are excellent for that if nothing else just the education if you do the practice accounts watching how markets move and then seeing things on the news and then seeing how markets move is not just fascinating if you're into it but like it really puts into context everything that you're hearing from politicians who aren't watching markets that way. So I, I think it extends to everything from your business to your financial life, your aptitude for um, reading bullshit, and also 
for who you elect and your um, your political penchants, shall we say? Yeah. And so yeah, yeah, with that, I'll wrap up. So yeah, interest. Not we might need a part two to this because we didn't even really talk about bond structures and yields and. <laughs> uh, well, let's we 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 got lots we'll of time. Yeah. So short story. That's why inflation is theft. Yes. Thank, thank you guys but for Inflation watching. is fine on its own. It's just that manipulated inflation, that forced yeah. inflation, the engineered inflation is bad. Yeah. When they're printing money. Yes. Taken away from you. Yes. Erosion of wealth. Anyway, what was that quote? We should end on that quote again. Um, economically speaking, churches are more productive than banks. Something. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to write that one down. Anyway, thanks for listening to Frivolous Gravitas. Myself, Christopher Driver, and as always, the super cool and casual Mr. Jordan Roy. Oh, I'm casual now. <laughs> super casual. Uber cash, as the kids say. They don't say that, do they? No. <laughs> okay, bye, guys.